You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This is Jack Burton in the Pork Chop Express, and I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. It's a pretty amazing planet we live on here, and a man would have to be some kind of fool to think we're all alone in this universe. There is a hidden world where ancient evil weaves a modern mystery. What's going on here? Is this some kind of... Magic. The darkest magic. They call it Little China. Finally, we shall bring order out of chaos. It's where big trouble was waiting for Jack Burton. Who? Jack Burton. Me. Jack. Jack. Jack! They told him to go to hell. We make one move. And that's just where he's going. Somebody, I don't care who, tell me what is going on. How are you going to spring us? I have no idea. There are many mysteries, many unanswerable questions, even in a life as short as yours. My destiny rests in your capable hands. Hey, I'll do my best. Ah! Oh God, is this really happening? This is gonna take Cracker Jack timing, Wang. One, two, three. She may be trapped. Total concentration. Safety. Oh, yeah. You ready, Jack? I was born ready. Way to go, Jack. Jack Burton's coming to rescue your summer. Hey, what more can a guy ask for? 20th Century Fox presents Kurt Russell in John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. On the reflexes. Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Vincenzo Natale. Well, hello, Mike. Also back in the booth this week is Mr. Tony Black. I was born ready for this. This week we are looking at the 1986 film from director John Carpenter, Big Trouble in Little China. It's the story of Wang Chi, played by Dennis Dunn, a restaurateur whose fiancée, Mao Lin, played by Susie Pai, gets kidnapped by the nefarious forces of David Lopan, played by James Hong, a seemingly innocent old man who is actually the embodiment of the evil spirit of Lopan, a demon who needs a woman with green eyes in order to become corporeal again and begin his reign of terror on Earth. And there were some other white people involved in the story, too. We'll be getting into spoilers galore on this episode, so if you haven't seen Big Trouble in Little China, do so or forever hold your peace. So, Tony, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think? This is going to be very different from when I was last on, because when I did 12 Monkeys, it was I think I said, oh, yeah, I watched it a few weeks ago for this podcast. In this case, it was probably when I was about four or five years old, which would be around 1990, 1990, 1991. So it was on VHS by then. 
so this this is this is a childhood film for me. This is this is one of the small lexicon of films that got me adoring cinema. And since then, I've watched it at various points over the years. But it just this film, perhaps only Back to the Future for me, encapsulates the 1980s in cinema. Big Trouble in Little China takes me right back to the early 90s when I first saw it. And I've just loved it ever since I was a child. So it's clouded with a bit of childhood nostalgia. But over the years when I've watched it again, at various points and I've come back to it, I, I never, ever tire of it. I love it just as much as an adult. And watching it a few times before this podcast, it will always be a favourite of mine. So I've, I've got a lot. I've got a long history with it. How about you, Vincenzo? I'm dating myself, but I saw it in the theatre upon its release in 1986, and I would have been 17 years old at the time. I was primed for it because I was a big Buckaroo Banzai fan, and W.D. Richter, who directed Banzai, wrote Big Trouble in Little China. And of course, I was a huge John Carpenter fan, and I, I went in with high expectations, and then my expectations were blown away because it was even more than I could have hoped for. And my friends and I quoted it endlessly and continue to quote it God knows how many years later. Uh, it definitely makes up, as with Tony, a, a big chunk of my cultural upbringing. And it holds particular fascination for me because Big Trouble in Buckaroo Banzai and other movies of that period like Repo Man and Return of the Living Dead and Evil Dead, they all felt like they were tuned into the same frequency. They all seem to be like a deconstruction of pulp mythology in a really smart way. And at that time, mentally, <laughs> where I was, I was really ready for that because I'd kind of gone through the, I'd, I'd sort of experienced pulp in its straight form. And then this was this kind of postmodern take on it that at the time just seemed so fresh and original and was probably the reason why it was a complete financial disaster. But that, of course, made it even more special. Yeah, so Big Trouble was uh, really one of my all-time favorite movies. And like a lot of screwball comedies, I feel like it's lightning in a bottle. And it's very few films have ever, if any, have ever really accomplished what it has done or what it did. And I love it to pieces. So I'm treading very dangerous ground on this episode because I saw this also in theaters. Probably, I think I was about 14 when this came out. And I didn't get it back then. I was just like, what is going on? I don't understand what's happening. Like, it was the whole thing that, you know, we'll hear later on where people are, were confused that Kurt Russell was playing the second banana, even though he's kind of billed as the top guy. The reason why I chose to describe the plot the way that I did is because really, this is Wang's story. And Burton is that second banana. He's the, the the guy who we follow into the story and he takes us into the story, but he is one of the most confused protagonists ever. There's a great supercut out there of Jack Burton asking questions of just him so confused. All right, what's going on, Wang? Why'd they steal your girl? She pretty? What is it? What is going on? What alley? What is it, a parade? Uh, this does what again exactly? What is that, huh? So where is he, eh? Where from? Where in the hell are we? Where's this go now? Where'd you get that? What? Who the hell are you anyway? What, you? Who, him? This guy? What is that? Don't tell me. Where's my truck? How? What? Huh? What the hell? What the hell? Is this going to get ugly now? And we are that observer character that he is. He's our entree into that world. 
I was confused when I saw this the first time. And this movie has never really clicked for me. So I'm going to stand on the sidelines a little bit here. And as you guys talk about this, because we've got nostalgia factor going on from both of you guys, both of, this was an influence for both of you. And for me, it's just like even rewatching it again for the podcast. I'm just like, man, this, this just doesn't really work for me. So I'm very, I'm, I'm excited to hear why the, the movie works so well for both of you guys as we kind of go through and, and, and describe what's happening in this. It doesn't surprise me though, in a way, because I think it's, it's one of the, those films, and I have to say, I, I misaged myself when I said this. I was actually around eight or nine years old. For some reason, I thought I was only four or five, but I'm, I wasn't. I was a little bit older, but it was the same effect. And I think it is one of those films that even now, I, I really think if I showed this to somebody who was about, well, if I showed this to somebody who was 20 or over, who didn't grow up in that age or near that, around that point it was made, I don't think they'd really know what to make of it. I think it really is one of those films that you either just get for whatever reason or you don't get. And not that you can't appreciate it in some way or you can't appreciate some of the things John Carpenter did or, you know, Kurt Russell's performance, things like that. But I think there's, there's a, like Vincenzo said, there is a real uniqueness about this film that is, makes it a bit of, as we say in the UK, a Marmite film. You either love it or you hate it or somewhere in between. And, and I think the box office sort of showed that as well. And I should like this because, Vincenzo, you mentioned The Evil Dead, and Jack Burton is very much like Ash Williams. And we'll talk a little bit more about old Jack Burton, the comic book, uh, in the second half of the show. But Jack Burton and his swagger that he has and his misplaced security in himself and his manhood and just you know how he thinks he is god's gift to everything is very ash especially ash in like uh, the medieval dead in in, in uh, army of darkness not necessarily in the first two evil dead films but he was so cocky in that third movie and then of course in ash versus the evil dead and that's so much of what Burton is doing. What what um, I shouldn't say Burton because we've also got the actress uh, Kate Burton in here. But that, that's what Kurt Russell is doing. And I thought it was clever too the way that you know he was channeling Clint Eastwood when it came to Escape from New York, and then he's pretty much channeling John Wayne when it comes to doing uh, Big Trouble in Little China. And he's got that kind of thing that he's doing with his voice. You know, having the Duke there. And doing that, and then also the whole idea of him, we all know that John Carpenter is a huge Howard Hawks fan, and that they're mixing a Howard Hawks comedy with a Howard Hawks Western, and then placing Kurt Russell as John Wayne in the middle of this. But really, it's like if Ricky Nelson was the hero of Rio Bravo more than John Wayne was. We see you totally get it, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's it that's it but yeah, i think it was it was a hard thing certainly at the time i'm sure that it was hard, hard for a mainstream audience to assimilate but it, it doesn't take much to see the direct line from big trouble in little china to guardians of the galaxy that 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 p- peculiar brand of humor that is very culturally specific and culturally self-referential wound its way from the kind of outer fringes into like the heart of the mainstream 20 years or plus later. Uh, but I, I think part of what makes Big Trouble in Little China so exciting is that it doesn't really have any equivalent at the time that it was made. Like there wasn't a large commercial studio American film that embraced Chinese culture in the way that Big Trouble did. And, you know, it would be another 
I guess, 15 years or so to the Matrix, which is, that felt like the moment when Hong Kong cinema truly penetrated the mainstream, even though it had been kind of boiling around the edges. But Big Trouble is the one that really found a way to kind of marry East and West successfully and, and, and do it at this very high level. Like it's a, you know, I mentioned Repo Man or Return of the Living Dead is movies that tonally seem like they're um, siblings of this one, but those are small movies. But Big Trouble in Little China was a, that was a big Ghostbusters size kind of film, you know, really brave of everyone to take it on. So I think it, it has like real cultural significance. I think the movie had that kind of deep impact that only was felt many years later in other movies that were, if not directly, you know, indirectly inspired by it. What's really funny when you mentioned the Evil Dead as well, and you mentioned Army of Darkness, that was 93. So it's almost like Jack Burton may have been, was inspired by the character of Ash. And, you know, as you say, going back further to bringing John Wayne into that, uh, into the performance. But he then, there's an argument that Bruce Campbell maybe looked at Big Trouble in Little China and took a little bit of Jack further into that character. And I think there's so, if you look now, so many different characters and so many films that have tried to capture, I think, what Kurt Russell did in the same way that, you know, a lot of films try to capture what John Carpenter does with, you know, blending Kung Fu, this strange sorcery brings into this, this mysticism, you know, this just general action movie comedy. And how not many of them get it, you know, manage to get it right in that strange concoction, this weird brew that comes out of Big Trouble in Little China. And it never struck me when I was younger that it is it is a comedy. You know, <laughs> for some reason, even though it always made me laugh, and that's one of the things I love about it, you know, John Carpenter and has said it, it was a comedy, first and foremost. And when you watch it, when you watch it as an older person and you watch it now and you think, yeah, you, it's so obvious. That's one of the reasons that Jack isn't the hero. Isn't the hero. That's the whole point. Maybe you don't notice the comedy because... If the film is sophisticated enough not to point it out, because I, 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 I rewatched it just before this podcast, and and I was really struck by well how the music doesn't play into the comedy at all. Like it just lets it doesn't punctuate any of the one liners. It doesn't punctuate any of that stuff. It just lets it be, which I think is to the movie's credit. But maybe confused people because something like Ghostbusters, you know, which is also a terrific movie, highlights the comedy. Like it pushes the comedy into the foreground and. You know, it's a little more cloying in its desire to make you laugh, whereas Big Trouble has the sophistication, self-confidence, or maybe the lack of self-awareness to just let it be. And and I know when I was a teenager, that was very appealing. Like that, the the sneakiness of it, the fact that it didn't, it felt like it wasn't trying to appeal to everybody was what made us think it was cool. It was partly what made it feel like something that was special, that only we could perceive what was funny in it. And, you know, we were pretentious and <laughs> that made it more appealing. There are just some weird moments in here. Like, well, when Gracie Law shows up and I'm like, OK, Gracie Law, that sounds like it's supposed to be an Asian name. She grew up in Asia. I don't know if she's a mixed background. I don't know what her relationship is with anything when she shows up. I know we get like a little bit more in the screenplay as far as like her I think she's like the daughter of some missionaries or something. And she's trying to look out for young Asian women who come over to the country and protect them. But it's just a strange character. She's, she's a strange character. And then the reporter character that Kate Burton plays, 
it's like, who is this woman? She just shows up out of nowhere and there's nothing going on, you know, to explain who she is. I'm just like, what's happening? So again, I feel as confused as Jack Burton. Cause I'm just like, who is this person? What is their relationship to this? What's going on? And very much I'm, I'm joining this adventure already in progress, which I kind of appreciate. But at the same time, from a filmmaking point of view, I'm just like, this is kind of weird. I, I've never experienced this kind of thing before. Slow down. I'm feeling a little like an outsider here. You are. It feels a little bit like maybe the female characters suffer in terms of the way they're written in this. I mean, given, you know, props to Kim Cattrall because she's, she was my like late eighties, early nineties crush for years. You know, Kim Cattrall. Kim Cattrall, Kim Cattrall, Kim Cattrall, Kim Cattrall, Kim Cattrall, Kim Cattrall, Kim, Kim, Kim Cattrall. You've never made a bad film. Oh, what the hell? Ring my bell. Let's go to the Dells. Our relationship will gel. I like your smell. You're really swell. I'm Geraldine Heston for Contel. I love you, Kim. I liked your dress at the Ace Awards. Cartrell! And she's a great actress, to be fair, when she gets really good material. And she did really well with this, because I don't think Grace is particularly well-written. Uh, nor do I think Margot, the Kate Burton character, is particularly well No, No, that's, that's, that's the um, journalist. Yeah, Margot is the journalist. Yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. And uh, nor do I think the, the Kate Burton character is particularly well-written, in that they, they really, a lot, they're either there for exposition, or they're there for a specific reason and you get you get to the point with gracie law questioning whether her but what her background is you know obviously later on in the movie when she's captured by lopan she is made up in a very chinese female way and it, and it, it, it's strange but then you know she says she's a lawyer so you know gracie law is it that on the nose is it that i think that's i think it's a very wd richter thing I, th- I think that he, they're tropes. They're just tropes. Yeah. And, and there's no attempt or desire to make them more than that. I mean, they're, they're subverting the trope in so much as Gracie is like Princess Leah. You know, she's a very independent, uh, tough talking woman. But at the end of the day, she's going to end up being a prisoner of the Death Star and is going to have to be saved. And that's where the pulp roots lie. <clears throat> and that's what this is going to be. I don't think it's, um, this is a boys movie and it's it it has its roots deep in, you know, Republic serials and that kind of thing. And I'm afraid that's just what the girls did in those movies. I, I suppose the only difference is that in, you know, using, say, the, start, the uh, Princess Leia analogy in, you know, Empire Strikes Back, she falls for Han Solo and, and it's reciprocated. Whereas in this, she falls, she ends up falling for Jack or she's attracted to Jack and he's, he rejects her at the end. So, <laughs> right. You know, he's like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm getting back in my truck and all this. And that, that's, that's different because you'd expect they do. I mean, he kisses her at one point and they have a bit of a smooch in the lift and it leaves him with the lipstick, which is a wonderful touch. You know, you, you'd expect in a conventional film, you'd expect them, the final scene to be them kissing, you know, and, and something like, but it's not, you know, and that, that's one of the other things about this in that it doesn't always go down the path you think it will go down. You know, and the, obviously, you know, that that tracks with Jack as a character all the way through. In that sense, I like that. But, yeah, I agree. I, I don't know if Gracie is there for much more than, yeah, getting from A. <laughs> it's, I think it's a very W.D. Richter kind of joke that is this almost identical beat in uh, Buckaroo Banzai, where at the end of the movie, Buckaroo kisses Penny Pretty. And then you cut to the aliens and they say, so what big deal? <laughs> and it's the same kind of... You know, it's a little bit of a fuck you to the audience that is <laughs> is actually really funny. 
because it subverts that expectation. What's almost like Gracie is she and Mao Yin are the same person and they're just split into two so that we can have a love interest for both Wang and for Jack, even though he rejects, you know, Jack rejects her at the end, which is very much like a Western, you know, that's very like Shane gets on his horse and rides off, you know, Jack gets on the pork chop express and he's out of San Francisco and maybe he'll come back someday. Maybe he won't. You never know, ma'am. And he's going to tip his hat and drive off into the sunset. So in poor Mao Yin, I mean, poor Susie Pie, I mean, she wasn't the greatest actress in the world. I've seen her in other things, but, and so it was kind of clever to keep her pretty much mute through the entire movie, but my God, she has nothing to do. She is just that princess to be rescued. So I do appreciate that Gracie and Margot, because they, you know, it's almost like all three women are just aspects of the same woman and at one point, I think all of them are captured in different places. So it's like, it's constant rescue, rescue, rescue of these women. And and I forget, like, going back and rewatching this for the podcast, I remember when they go into the underworld, the, the David Lopan world, I forgot that they get out and then they come back in with reinforcements later on. I just remember them going in there and that being the entire movie. So when I watch this again and I see so much of the stuff and I see those three gangsters who are, you know, kidnapping the women at the beginning of the movie or kidnapping Miao Yin, it's just like, wow, where did this stuff come from? I completely blocked it out of my head. The bit that that I completely forgot was when they're going down when they're going battery reinforcements, they're going down into the, the 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 weird sewers underneath like San Francisco, and they get attacked by that great monster thing that comes out of the um, the cave. And uh, Egg Shen says he won't be back anymore, or something like that. And Jack goes, "What? What won't be back anymore?" <laughs> and you never get any explanation for why, how, and why that thing is there, and what it is. And it's those little things that are just gold that I I, I too had completely forgotten about. Yeah, it's no again. It's like uh, the watermelon in the vice in Buckaroo Banzai. Like, what's that doing there? I'll tell you about it later. It's a very specific sense of humor. And I, even now, I'd be curious, but I don't think it will ever cut through to every. You know, without well, obviously, Mike, it, it didn't fully connect with you. It's um, it's it's a very quirky uh, kind of sense of humor. I think the other thing that surprised me is, and I'm not just trying to pick on this movie because I'm, I'm enjoying hearing what you guys have to say about this. So, you know, I, I'm not just here to shit on this film because I enjoy it at the end of the day, but I'm not as connected to it as you guys are because there, there are these strange moments, like the moment where they have the big fight in the alleyway and our main two guys are just sitting in the truck the whole time. And I'm just like, okay, this is strange. Like I kept it waiting for them to get out of the truck and, and join in the fight. You know, like who's the good guys, who's the bad guys. Well, I, the guys in the yellow are the good guys and the guys in the red are the bad guys. And of course the guys in red are the bad guys because Al Leong is one of the guys in red. And I, I always love seeing him show up and stuff and they just have this huge fight, but our main two guys are just sitting in the truck the whole time. I was just like, this is a really interesting choice to do this. You know, like in any other film I would think, and I keep trying to think of like, you know, uh, Hong Kong films that might have uh, corollary, corollaries to this. And I'm just like, I can't think of Jackie Chan sitting by on the sidelines being a reluctant hero, or I guess they just don't want to get involved, but it's like, I've never seen anything like this before. So I guess bravo, but it's still such a, a strange choice to do. I'm sure I remember 
you're hearing that John Carpenter wanted the, to you not to be sure who were the good guys and who were the bad guys in that fight until then the um, lightning, thunder and rain show up and then it's pretty clear. And and I think he just wanted to throw you into the sense of confusion that Jack has sitting there in his truck going, what the hell is all this? You know, that kind of, that's something that follows obviously through the whole film, you know, and that, that scene I just mentioned where Jack's saying, what the hell is that monster? It's that whole constant thing that he's just completely baffled all the way through as to what's going on when, ostensibly people would have shown up. And I think he, they talk about this Kurt Russell and John Carpenter in their amazingly entertaining commentary track, which I recommend anyone goes and listens to because it's fantastic. It's, it's so much fun. Kurt Russell's laugh is just the best. They talk about how they, they, want, they wanted that, that sense of, you know, complete bafflement all the, all the, all the way through the, the film with, you know, Jack not going on that traditional journey. And I, I think that that scene is all about you feeling that sense of confusion. So even though Jack isn't, you know, going to be involved, what like you think that Kurt Russell would be as as the lead, that's entirely the point. But it is it is strange because normally your your lead character, and, and in this, this case Wang, who's the hero of the piece, would be in the middle of it, I guess. So it is different. Since we're talking about this, and we should just talk about the um, the direction because I find this movie to be one of John Carpenter's best directed films. I think it's a really yeah. beautifully crafted piece of filmmaking and beautifully designed, beautifully photographed by Dean Kundi, really sharply cut. I think the editing is amazing. Um, and I think the visual effects hold up incredibly well. I think there are just certain things in it that to this day astound me. I don't really know how they did them, especially without the uh, benefit of CGI. So, and that scene in particular is a, it's just, I mean, I guess that's, you know, a, a Western action scene that John Carpenter never got to shoot in an actual Western. Is it, but it's a really finely executed and choreographed piece of action. Yeah. Everything in this movie looks terrific. I love the sets. I love when they go into Chinatown and it becomes that amazing set and the way that they go underground and that is, just has that wonderful look and i love the uh, the big finale of the film with the escalator and the the neon light and everything is it's just again this kind of real incongruous stuff that works really well and it, it, yeah it has a, a beautiful beautiful look and i i think that um uh that, that james hong uh as lopan just i love the look of him, the look of the outfit, everything that he's doing is great. And I love thunder, lightning, and rain. And I was really glad. I felt uh, very vindicated last night. I was reading um, the book about the making of Big Trouble in Little China. And I had always thought that watching the Lone Wolf and Cub films, the three brothers who are assassins in the second film, or they're in the first film if you're watching Shogun Assassin, that they were very much an inspiration for thunder, lightning, and rain. And sure enough, Carpenter was like, oh yeah, I love that movie, and those hats are definitely right there from Lone Wolf and Cub, so I was very happy to hear that. And those three guys, what great looks that they have, especially Thunder is one of my favorite characters, and he just looks so badass. I mean, Carter Wong is just amazing to watch. Wasn't he also a, um, an instructor in like the Hong Kong police? Yes, yes he was, or at least according to that commentary, which... <laughs> That commentary, to, to double up on what you were saying, that commentary is fantastic, especially when they completely break out of watching the movie and just start talking about their kids. 
yeah, they spend so so much. They just go off on tangents. It's wonderful. But but yeah, he he uh, he had that that background. I think that made him a genuine kind of badass. And you you know he brings that into the into that intensity that he's got as as Thunder. And that they're they're all so weird. I just remember they really scared me as a kid. They were just really strange, and their their powers were just bizarre. Even though they're on the face of it, really hilarious with their massive hats. Um, <laughs> so when you look at them now, there is that sort of level of what the hell are they? But yeah, they they're really really weird. Yeah, I think the film it's really walks a line. But it, it I think this kind of thing could be culturally deeply offensive. But it, it never strayed, for me anyway, as a white male, so probably I'm the worst person to comment on this. But I, I, I feel that the way it approaches the mythology is with tremendous, intense interest. And yet it doesn't shy away from the absurdity of it either. And like those hats are both fantastic and ridiculous. And, and they're, they're kind of funny and they're also kind of cool. That aesthetic is infused in the whole movie. Like you were saying, the, the Chinese demon that's outlined in neon. <laughs> it's it's both very exotic and fascinating and kind of absurd at the same time. Like that character that they call the Wild Man, or he gets the name Pete later on in the 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 comic books. That kind of ape man looking character. It's like where does he come from? And you would think he would be not the main baddie, but the main um, you know man at at arms kind of thing, but. Lopan's got both thunder, lightning, and rain, and that guy as well. Plus all of the kung fu guys that he's using to battle everybody. So it's just he—he he seems so unstoppable because he's got so many powers and so many uh, amazing allies in this fight. I love Lopan. Lopan is is one of the best things about this film. James Hong, he's so so good. What all we what amazes me when, when I watch it now with Lopan is that he's both really quite scary as a villain and really quite powerful and you believe he he's genuine a genuine threat but at the same time the film spends the entire movie taking the rise out of him you know like <laughs> my favorite line which is when that you know wang who's wonderfully earnest all the way through you know he's the way saying jack but this is the legend jack and this is what happens jack and jack's like oh whatever it's when he says he's telling him about how um Lopan, you know, the story of how he needs a green-eyed bride and all this. And, and Jack says, what, 2,000 years? And he can't buy one bride to fit the bill. <laughs> and it's that whole thing. He's just, come on, Dave. And the way he calls him Dave all the way through. I've rarely seen a film that manages to have a villain who can both be laughed at and equally terrify you at the same time. And I think James Hong, his performance just really nails that with Lopan. It's very, it's a fine line, but I think he manages it. When he tells Jack Burton to just shut up, I'm just like, that's great because Jack Burton never shuts up at any point and his, his mouth is constantly getting him into trouble. That amazing scene where he goes, quote unquote, undercover, looking at the, the brothel for the green eyed girl. And I love Kurt Russell in that used cars jacket that he's got. Plus, I think he borrowed uh, Robin Williams' glasses. He's got those amazing glasses and tons of guy liner going on. And he just, he plays a nerd so well in that. Even though Wang is a great lead, Dennis Dunn really does a great job of that. Kurt Russell, his charisma goes on for miles. And even when he's playing this kind of unlikable, kind of a jerk character... I'm still there 100% for him because I just love Kurt Russell and he can do no wrong for me in this film. I think it's uh, really courageous of him to have taken that part. Mm. You know, it's such a subversion of what a classic Hollywood male action hero is. 
I mean, you don't see that even now. I can't really recall many examples of anyone playing that kind of role, especially somebody who was, you know, was all of those things <laughs> in other movies. Like for him to to lampoon himself in that way in a big movie like that, a high profile movie was, I think, tremendously courageous and showed a lot of willingness to laugh at himself, and which is partly why he's so charming. And I just think he works really well with Dennis Dunn, who plays Wang. That's the real love story of this movie. And I think they make a really good pair. It's a great, it is a great buddy movie. And I like Dennis Dunn a lot. I think he's uh, super charismatic and fun. And again, unexpected in the choices that he makes and the things that he does. For all of its quirkiness, I think there's a tremendous amount of emotion and humanity, particularly shared between those two characters. Yeah, that scene of them at the beginning when they're playing, what, Pai Gao, that interaction between the two of them where they're kind of rivals, but you can tell that there's more going on and it's kind of revealed that they have a history together. That's one of those really nice moments to set us up at the beginning to say, these guys have a history, there is a respect here. So it doesn't make it weird that Jack is along for the ride because he wants to be there with Wang, he is a, a good friend, even though he's kind of saying like, oh, yeah, I'll drive you to the airport because I don't trust you with my money. I think he would have gone along with him to the airport regardless as a friend. It's like a, a friendly rivalry, isn't he? They have that relationship that he's on the face of it could be, you know, have antipathy to it, but it doesn't. And I think that's one of the reasons that I think it's a good part for Kurt Russell and does it so well. And why Jack is such a good character is because you're right. He does go along on this journey. Even though he's the ultimate reluctant hero, you know, I just want to get back to my truck, you know, all this kind of thing. Ultimately, that's not quite true. In the end, he is he is invested. He does want to help. He does want to help get back Mao Yin. He does want to help Wang. And the great thing about it is that he 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 walks in there thinking he's the, you know, the cock of the walk and he's the hero and he's gonna save everyone. And then he shoots a gun and plaster falls on his head and knocks it. And that's that's the beauty of the character, and that's why. It's it, he works so well, and it, it's it's so unusual. But that is, I think, one of the reasons why it's Kurt Russell's performance is is spot on. And 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 yeah, it, it's because it it doesn't do what you think. And following up on what you said before earlier, Vincenzo, is that when that plaster falls on his head, we don't get the on the soundtrack. <laughs> it just keeps playing. No, exactly, and equally, and it happens twice in the same scene. And then he <laughs> knifes that guard who ends up falling on top of him and he's trapped under this dead body for the rest of the fight scene. It's a real, like, but I think the action in this is stupendous. It's so sharp and clever and funny. And then particularly at that time, it just wasn't something that you saw at that budget level in a mainstream Hollywood movie. It was really all the flying wire work or whatever trampoline work that's done is spectacular and dwell on any of this stuff. It just throws one gag after another. I think it's surprising and really a, a great endorsement as, of John Carpenter as like a truly versatile director that he could do comedy so well. Other than Dark Star, you know, which is kind of a student film and is pretty rough around the edges, he had never done anything like this before. I mean, it was other than maybe satire. I don't think there's anything harder to do than screwball comedy to make it work. The history of cinema is littered with failed screwball comedies and he completely pulls it off like the timing in this movie is so spot on that that opening scene the bottle breaking scene of the bottle that doesn't break that's like a master class in introducing characters and setting up stakes and 
there's so much information that you know is breezily delivered. See, appears is like just breezily delivered, like off the cuff, and yet all really essential and perfectly executed. It's not what you would expect from the guy who directed Halloween. I always felt like John Carpenter, especially in the later years, became quite bitter, and it was because he realized how good he or he knows how good he is, <laughs> and and Hollywood didn't. I think he felt like he deserved more credit. And and he really did. One of the things I really liked on that audio commentary too, was Kurt Russell talking about, and John Carpenter talking about where their careers were at, at the moment. And, you know, we did an episode on the thing, I guess it was two years ago now. And the thing that surprises a lot of people when I brought it up then, and, and, and when people bring it up now is to realize just what a flop the thing was and that people hated that movie when it came out. And so it wasn't like Kurt Russell was coming off of a big hit. He was taking a chance in this role, like you had said, you know, it's not a typical action hero role. And Carpenter was kind of taking a chance to have him in this film because after the thing, it's not like he was burning up the screen. You know, Swing Shift was really kind of a doomed production. You know, Jonathan Demme famously got the movie taken away from him and recut and what came out, no one was really happy with. It wasn't like the mean season or the best of times was again, a huge box office sensation. So it's not like this was Kurt Russell, who was the number one box office draw of all times, but still the man has an ego. He's got something to protect. And then John Carpenter putting this guy who isn't, and he's not box office poison, but he's not, you know, seen as being this strong presence at this time, putting him in this movie was kind of a risk for him. And Carpenter, you know, I love that he talks about how, you know, he had to do his mea culpa uh, after the thing by doing Christine and then doing uh, Starman and just be like, yeah, listen, I can be a good boy. I can do these movies. And then he immediately, which I love, turns around and does Big Trouble in Little China, which is a super risky movie. And yeah, it did not pay off at the time, but I love that people now, you know, people back then and people now embrace this movie and that it just kind of has snowballed just like the thing has snowballed over all of these years. And yeah, I completely agree with you, Vincenzo, is that it's like he was always a few years, if not a few decades ahead of his time. So it's like, you know, maybe eventually we'll look back and I, I doubt it, but maybe eventually we'll look back and be like, wow, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. What an amazing movie. <laughs> but it is I, one of the things, you know, nice things about being alive for so long is that I can look back and I experienced that history real time. And I was there when the thing flopped, even though I loved it. And as you say, it was, revi- no, it was more than that a failure. Like that film was reviled, even by a lot of important genre magazines like Cinema Fantastique wrote it famous like brutal, brutal review that I, I believe John Carpenter was deeply wounded by. And, and then whereas other movies, you know, were celebrated. And if you look at, I'd be curious actually to know what was nominated for best picture in 1986, but I'm willing to bet very few of those films would have the staying power that big trouble with little China does culturally. It's just over that long period of time. It's fascinating to see, what rises to the surface and and so often the movies that are discussed constantly and referred to constantly were absolute failures at the time and and john carpenter really when you think about his career like he had an amazing run right up until memoirs of an invisible man 
let's see if I can name all the films in order, but there is Dark Star, Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, Escape from New York, The Thing, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble. I don't know if I missed one. Oh, The Fog. That has to be like one of the best runs of any filmmaker at any time. And the really sad part of it is that, oh, and, and of course, then after Big Trouble, uh, Prince of Darkness and, and They Live. And They Live, you know, is a movie that is, of course, more relevant now than ever, given the political climate. But it is constantly, like books have been written about that film. That is an unbelievable run. And I'm sure John Carpenter just must endlessly be frustrated that a lot of those or a number of those films were not recognized for what they were at the time and really ended his career. Like after Big Trouble, he the only large budget film he made was Memoirs of an Invisible Man, I believe. And he intentionally took two low budget films after Big Trouble, um, which is actually, I think, a very strategically clever thing for him to do but they were just that smaller movies and and his career never recovered recovered after big trouble it never you know, that was kind of almost the end of the line for him but here at his late age like he must be enjoying the fact that he really has become one of the most relevant filmmakers of that period few others are spoke of as often and with such fondness as 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 he is one of the things that always interested me about the movie is the use of dissolves. There's a lot of dissolves that are happening between different scenes, especially when they go back into Lopan's domain. And I've always wondered if that's where they were trimming or if that was just a way of saying, you know, time is passing and it's taking a long time for us to make this journey into the underworld. Because I've seen other films where it's like, oh, wow, all of these dissolves really feel like they're omitting things. And I went back and I, I read the screenplay, and there are a couple things here and there that aren't in the final film, like a line here, a line there. There's like one little bit towards the end with the, what do they call them? The Lords of uh, Lords of Death. There's one little bit with them where they get their comeuppance at the end, but it made Jack look like he was a little bit of a vindictive guy. I would have been fine with it, but whatever. Lightning himself, the the third elemental guy, he seems to be kind of missing through this. We get a lot of thunder, a lot of rain. I've seen thunder and I've seen rain, but I don't see a lot of lightning in this one. So I've always wondered like if there's a little bit more of his character that wasn't necessarily there. But once they get into that, like the second time they go to David Lopan's place, like I said before, that's where the movie kind of starts for me. And that's where I really start to get involved in this film and i love how you never know what's going to be around that corner that next corner if there's going to be that wild man the the creature that attacks them or that crazy uh the eye guardian which seems like he's you know right out of the D monster manual and i love that creature i think he looks amazing and i love when he comes back the second time and he's kind of licking his wounds it's just so awesome i would really like to know how they made that thing it is a phenomena. I saw a picture and it was like they had all of these servos hooked up to them from just like directly from the back and were manipulating all those eyes independently, all the, the stuff. And they had two versions of them, I guess. One was the front version, one was the back version. And they said, and I don't know if Screaming Mad George worked directly on this, but he was part of the effects crew. It sounded like they had a ton of different effects crews working on this. And when I read Screaming Mad George was involved, I was just like, that totally seems like something he would have come up with. 
it, this is a compliment. It looks like a digital effect. It looks animated because it's so well articulated and it's so expressive. Um, and it moves, you know, I think one of the hardest things to do is make a puppet like that move slowly. And the way it, it kind of its mouth opens and closes is very organic, slow movement. It's really um, and when it Jack Burton shoots at it and it spins and flies away. I don't know. How, I honestly don't know how they did that. I mean, I guess it was motion control or something, but it's really um, like compare that to uh, Slimer from Ghostbusters. And, you know, Slimer looks like a Muppet. This thing is so much better. Was that the same year? I think Ghostbusters was 1984. That's right. I remember all those big celebrations that were happening in 2014 about anniversaries, but there weren't a lot of Big Trouble in Little China anniversaries in 2016, which is kind of a shame. It's too much of a cult curiosity film in a way, really, still for that. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's one of those that, I think it's one of those films that people, unless if they're a big fan of it, and they always have been, they, they love it, they know every, they know all the lines, they, they could recite the whole thing from, they remember all of it. I think if if you there's a lot of people probably who may have caught bits of it on TV at various points over the years, and you say, Do you remember, have you ever seen Big Trouble in Little China? And they go, oh, what's that one? Is Kurt Russell's in it? Oh, what, what, what happened? There's these weird like kung fu guys with lightning coming out. They're like sorcerers. And like, maybe, maybe I've maybe I've seen that. So I think it's one of those that people have a vague knowledge of, but only true diehard fans stick with it and know about it. And I, that's why I think that. It hasn't quite, and, and also the fact that now they're talking about um, reboot, rebooting the franchise. I think also the fact is that it was a one-off. You know, it wasn't like a Ghostbusters that had a sequel and then there's been expectation over the years and there's been comic books and there's been all this kind of thing. I don't think Big Trouble has had as much of that over the years, that continuing sort of franchise appeal. So it stayed in people's memory. So it's it's still cult in a way. and and But I, I think there would have been quieter celebrations going on couple of years ago but it does have a continued cult following and there are comic books and games and there's certainly a lot of love for it to this day but it yeah i don't think it it was never ghostbusters was a massive success when it came out you know as was back to the future and and i think those films were just always easily consumable um in a way that big trouble never will be which is why it's so special like i, I think the things that prevented it from Breaking out are the things that we love it for. More has been done with the other kind of franchises, I think, as well. You know, they've they've kind of been able to sort of live on or transcend. Whereas, well, you start, like you say, absolutely, comic books, certain comic books have been done, things like that. After the fact, with Big Trouble, hasn't quite had that longevity in the public eye. So, I think that's that's partly what what it is, which is. Like you say, I think it is the fact that you can't quite quantify it in the same way you can a Ghostbusters or you can a Back to the Future. Not saying that they're worse films, because they're absolutely not, but they're they're a little bit easier to to sort of get your head around than the strange brew that is Big Trouble. Which is funny to say when you talk about people hunting ghosts and people traveling in time are easier concepts, but I totally agree. It's because they're more straightforward, aren't they? Much, much as Back to the Future is obviously hugely complicated in many ways with its time. People understand time travel. They understand ghost hunting. Do they understand weird kung fu sorcerers (laughs) from ancient China and like (laughs) a truck driver? It's. Do you see what I mean? It's. 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 It's interesting. It's different. Big trouble, and then I can't help but link it to Buckaroo Banzai. There. The whole mechanism is based on absurdity. Like the whole 
plot yeah. narrative mechanism is based on absurd, absurd concepts. And, and that's why it just can't, it'll never be accepted in the way that uh, a movie like Back to the Future will. It's just, mm-hmm. even though I think there, there are similarities, you know, and I, Neil Canton, certainly Mark Canton. Yeah, I think Mark and Neil Canton produced Back to the Future. Neil Canton produced Buckaroo Banzai and was partnered with W.D. Richter. So, you know, we're talking about a small group of people that were all circulating with each other. But but those the, the W.D. Richter movies very consciously and aggressively stepped away from the mainstream. Like they were they were really bold, like they were very punk rock in their mentality and their unwillingness to be acceptable on a on a, a large scale um which is again why i think they have deep influence like I, i'm i'm just interested in how cultural movements affect each other and i feel like and maybe this is just because of my own personal experience growing up but i feel like you wouldn't have big trouble in little china if you didn't have raiders of the lost ark that on some level big trouble is kind of like the next cultural evolutionary step because Raiders is really, you know, a a recreation, a a modern at that time, anyway, a modern um, uh, high tech recreation of the old Republic serials mixed with a little bit of Casablanca uh, and the Maltese Falcon. It's pretty straight up in the way that it um, entertains its audience. It's not trying to do something different than those movies did. Whereas big trouble, I feel like is, taking that Indiana Jones character and then turning it on its head and, and, you know, all the imperialist fantasies of invading another culture and so on that Raiders taps into are, are subverted in big trouble in little China. And, you know, the American um, is the fool and the exotic foreigner is the hero. And I feel like there's a continuum at work that, um, because I personally grew up in that continuum really affected me. And it, and it seems to me like that was going on in, the, uh, in a, a lot of different movies that, at that time, that there was in the late seventies and early eighties, there was a revival of, or an attempt to kind of revive the thrills of old Hollywood cinema. And then by the time you got to the mid, that kind of war at war at state, like it's, you know, star Wars and so on um, had their day and all their imitators had their day that got kind of boring. And then there was this other wave of movies that took those tropes and then tried to twist them and mash them up in a different way. And then you got movies like repo man and, uh, return of the living dead. And later on, maybe things like man in black and, and then, uh, yeah, guardians like it feel. And it feels to me like big trouble has played an important role in that movement. If it could be called that. Yeah, I was I was just going to say that. Funnily enough, I completely agree about Men in Black. I think that's that's almost your next step. It's sort of this all sort of starts to blend in the nineties a lot with more with when they sort of look back on you know B movie science fiction. Then you've got things like Independence Day coming out, which are a very different kind of film. But and then Men in Black, but certainly Men in Black owes a big debt to Big Trouble in Little China. So yeah, that, that it sort of continues on with that sort of revival thing. And I think in a way the the sort of Ghostbusters, Back to the Future. Um, Big Trouble kind of group and, and the films that cluster in that. I think they are so of their time as well in many ways. I think I think you know if if you were somebody said to me, can you can you name three movies that typify the nineteen eighties and how cinema blockbuster cinema and you know cinema that appeals to the, the the masses in many ways, even though Big Trouble didn't do brilliant business, but that kind of that kind of big bold bright 
crazy movie. I, I would say Ghostbusters. I would say Back to the Future. I would say Big Trouble. They are so of their decade. And yet at the same time, you know, calling back to all these different kind of styles of and old Hollywood and these kind of stories. But I, I, I really think that they are unique in that sense and that they, they exist. I don't think you could have made Big Trouble in Little China in the 70s or the 90s or the noughties, and it would have been the same film. I always saw Dennis Dunn's fedora as being a nod to Indiana Jones. I don't know if that's right or not, but I was when he shows up, he seems very stylishly dressed, and then he quickly gets rid of that, thank goodness, because I think I don't know if I would have been able to take his fedora through the entire thing. <laughs> I like his flight suit at the end, though. His flight suit's pretty good. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, you know, you're talking about subverting expectations. I mean, we could sit here and rewrite the entire end of this film and say what should have happened as far as, you know, who fights who, who dies when, you know, you get rid of the three baddies, you get rid of, you know, Pete, the 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 uh, the ape man character, you get rid of those guys first, and then you get rid of Lopan. But again, they turn it on its head, you know, Lopan the way that he dies and the way that it is so completely unceremonious as far as him throwing that knife back at Burton and then Burton just, you know, getting him right between the eyes with that knife. It's all in the reflexes. I mean, that is not the way that this movie should have ended, you know, that, but it's perfect for this movie, you know, but that doesn't happen in films and the way that thunder is still there afterwards and his weird death where he just blows himself up, you know, Again, it works for this. It it is defying expectations every single time. It's not like that typical video game ending that we get in most of the movies today where, you know, you battle this baddie, you battle this baddie, and you're working your way up from boss to boss to boss until you get to the big boss at the end, and you know that how that battle's going to go. And we've heard at the beginning of the film that somebody has this crazy ability, but again, we don't we don't know that Jack can flip a knife like that. That's completely, you know, something that, that uh, really comes in handy at the end there. But it's not like, you know, oh, my father gave me this when I was two years old, and now I'm going to be able to use it at the end of the film, because it's actually a charmed amulet that we've heard about through, you know, Egg mentioned that some mystic warrior will come along at some point, yada, yada, yada. It's great. I love that they don't do any of that horseshit, that it ends the way that it ends, that we, again, like you were saying earlier, he doesn't get the girl, that he decides to get back on the truck, and he rolls out of town, and he's the same guy at the end that he was at the beginning, doing the exact same thing, rolling out, talking on that CB radio, and then we get that nice little moment of Pete uh, showing his face behind the truck, and we don't ever need a sequel to that, but it, it was a, a nice way to end it. But I agree. I think you're you're really tapping into something because you know he this movie defies a lot of the Sid Field rules of writing a screenplay, and it's overly complicated. I mean, you really can't. I still don't know what's going on. Really, <laughs> I don't understand the mythology. I really don't, and I really don't care. I think that's part of the fun of it is that it is overcomplicated. That's sort of the point. It's like Alice in Wonderland, which is referenced in the movie. It's, it's impossible to understand. It's overly complicated. That's, that's China, the contradiction of China. And that's, what's so fun. The other movie that suddenly sprang to mind that was, I think made around, if not, yeah, I think it came up. It was uh, Brazil, you know, which is also a kind of 
pastiche and an overly complicated take on the 1984 Brave New World type story. I mean, and intentionally so. And that is kind of the point. Like, it's not trying to engage you with its plot. It's trying to engage you with all the dressing and the frills and things that are around the edges of the plot. These movies are really, they were very bold. They were really, they were doing things that are verboten, you know, in a, a Hollywood film, especially at that time when, um, in the mid to later 80s, Hollywood movies were becoming really um, rigid and predictable in the way they they were plotted. And these films were completely busting out from that. They were actively, aggressively fighting against it. And and I know as a kid, you know, that I was at that point a kid. I mean, I was seventeen or whatever. But in my teens, I was culturally uh, aware enough that that was very exciting. Like that, I was very aware that the filmmakers were doing something that they weren't supposed to do, and that's what was so much fun about it. But how, how many how many films after that? That's absolutely true. And how many films after that then? started doing some of these format breaking things some some of the some of the great ones did you know things like you know ha- putting pete the monster at the at the end i mean you know it, that that could be that could be a, a post-credit sequence nowadays you know it's you know what i mean it's it's that kind of stinger ending where oh the story's going to carry on but you know you don't have to see that so many films before this and there would have been some that did it but very few did very few had that you know, nice cheeky wink ending of, you know, the story carries on. And I, I think that's great. I think the, the format breaking things sort of, sort of inspired a lot of films that didn't necessarily do it as well as Big Trouble, but thought, you know what, we can we can do this now. We can we can tweak some of those conventions. So I think there's a lot of stuff, even even if it's not direct, I think a lot of stuff owes a debt to this film. Well, I I think one film, uh, what one good idea for a movie would to be, you know, take an African American private eye and have him investigate missing children, and then it actually ends up being this long held prophecy where they need this child. We'll call him something special like the Golden Child, where he then has to investigate this whole thing, and, and you know, he's a wise talking guy from the streets and really doesn't give a fuck about anybody. And we can even get James Hong and put him in this as well. So I think that sounds like actually Victor Wong and James Hong, both of those guys. <laughs> you know, I've never I've never seen The Golden Child. I saw that at the theater. I forgot that film existed. <laughs> you thought I was crazy, didn't you? <laughs> I haven't. You know, when that came out, like that was the biggest thing. And I complete, I haven't heard anyone say those words in probably 20 years. We did uh, Smile, so talking about Michael Ritchie and thinking about his career and where he was in the 70s. And it was like, whatever happened to Michael Ritchie? It's like, oh, yeah, The Golden Child. And <laughs> How was The Golden Child? Was it good? I still remember one part of it, which is when he comes in, Eddie Murphy comes in, and he's looking for this ceremonial knife. We have come to ask for the sacred cross dagger of a jaunty... For what reason? For the golden child. He does not need it. To save his life. The child lives for our sakes, not for his own. I humbly beg you, let us have the knife. Let him ask it. I said, I, 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 I want the knife. Let him ask again. 
I want the knife. Please. That's the only thing I remember from that entire movie. You know, there was definitely, I think in the wake of Star Wars and Indiana Jones, that there was like this real attempt to, you know, gung it in kind of old Hollywood adventure movies, that there was a real revival at that moment. Yeah, I forgot about that Golden Child would be one of those. Coming out just six months after Big Trouble in Little China. I mean, what a pisser, right? All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with Big Trouble's script supervisor, Sandy King, and the second is with screenwriter W.D. Richter. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy and filmmaking Nick Richards in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heather's, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future... Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us and join the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and of course, SoundCloud. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at twilightzone85.com. Dreams for Sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Can you tell me how you got involved with Big Trouble in Little China then? Well, I got hired. (laughs) The interesting thing was that, yeah, he and Larry asked me to do it, but also the uh, head of production at the time, Gene Levy, I had also worked for twice. So I had a, a big track record with him. 
you know, so it it really kind of wasn't that difficult. I had a, a pretty solid reputation in the industry. I'd done The Long Riders and uh, Thief with Gene. It wasn't like a big debate or I wasn't being brought in as an unknown. We talked a little bit about the nuts and bolts of script supervision last time. And the one thing I didn't ask that I wanted to ask this time is when you get brought onto a project as the script supervisor, at what point in the production is that? Like, where are they with things when you come into it? And how long do you stay on the project? It all depends on the production company, the studio, and and the director, how much they want you to do ahead. There's a traditional two-week prep window for uh, breaking down the page count and that kind of thing on the script and familiarizing yourself with it so that you know the day and night breaks and the uh, you've got notes for yourself on, on what's going to come up and you've met with the director and know where he wants you to really focus to keep him in line because there's so much being thrown at the director the whole time that you're kind of a backup brain for him for his continuity, not just in the literal matching of the scenes, but in the matching of the movement, the tone, and that, and that because you're not generally having the luxury of shooting in continuity. You're getting your ducks in a row for helping facilitate that. Then there's this other aspect of timing the script, how long you think it's running before it's ever shot. Generally, that's the job of the script supervisor, though sometimes they've had someone in production, someone else, or they've hired another script supervisor to do that. So that depends on whether they're putting you on way ahead or not. And also it depends on whether they want you on during rehearsals so that you're timing the rehearsals, you're getting familiar with the actors, that kind of stuff. Or you're also taking notes on the rewrites. and It really varies on what the director wants from you. So what was your experience on Big Trouble when they bring you in for that one? You know, I can't even remember. I, I was, well, I was on early on because by that time I was part of the team. So I was around for all of the prep and all of the... You know, I was around while they were building the sets and uh, everything. Those sets, they are still so amazing to look at. Well, that was John Lloyd. He was astounding. He was absolutely astounding. I mean, you know, he was also the production designer on the thing. And, you know, he really had this master designer aesthetic and a, a master of illusion and forced perspective and everything was just gorgeous you know the grand arcade and the the uh i can't remember what the hall was called with all the buddhas lined up and all the different hells john john lloyd was was pretty much unmatched for for a visual mastery i was just looking at that um making of book that uh, was put out i think last year oh yeah tara's book that forced perspective of Jack Burton in the wheelchair, and I'm looking at it, and I know that it's forced perspective, that it's not a ramp, and I'm still having to wrap my mind around that. Yeah, that was pretty tricky, and, and pretty uh, that was kind of a, a Disneyland e-ticket to watch Kurt go down that and teeter over the well, yeah. Had it already been cast when you were brought on? I think it was all already in mind. No, I mean, I remember when John was first deciding to do it. No, it hadn't been. It hadn't been cast. I remember all the casting and all the all the sessions of different martial artists coming in from all around the world. So that was fun. It's such an interesting mix of 
different martial artists and then even hearing some of the background of some of the guys that worked on it like i can't remember if it was thunder lightning or rain but one of them was was a male model and i was like oh yeah i can totally understand that they were all martial artists i may have been james pax was a model he might have been but they were all really adept martial artists peter kwong was a great sword fighter carter wong was a grandmaster from hong kong but we had guys from all around the world. I think we had something like three grandmasters and a bunch of masters. And they were all throughout, like in the, the giant alley fight where the two gangs encounter each other. Dad had masters all the way through, even the extras. So it was, it was a lot of fun to work on because you got to see all these really great people. And then, of course, that was where we uh, first met Jeff Amata. You know, he was part of Bruce Lee. And Danny Anasato was in there. These were all just real luminaries in that world. Well, and it's not like the rest of the cast was too much of a slouch either. I mean, God, James Hong, he's been around forever. I know. I know. I I personally think he probably was the emperor. But I had, I had worked on him, uh, worked with him in, uh, in the TV show 9 to 5. <laughs> so I knew him, you know, from other not so imperious roles. The chemistry in those Kurt Russell, John Carpenter films, I love all of them, but those in particular, just they sing to me. Oh, they're pretty undeniable. There's a, a great level of trust between Kurt and John. And, I mean, Kurt will go way out on the limb if John's got the net under him. Well, yeah, even just playing that type of character is, it's so unusual. And I think for me, when I first saw the film, I was so confused as a, as a kid watching this, just like, why is the hero talking all the time and so ineffectual? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the fun of it. He's an idiot. Yeah, he's great. He's a complete loser buffoon. I can see other actors just not even wanting to touch that role. Oh, who knows? No guts, no glory. Were there a lot of changes to the film as it was being made? Not that I recall. Every time you make a change after you've set things up, it costs money. Smart people figure out their changes ahead of shooting. That's where your rehearsal time comes in. That's where, you know, pre-production is a really important time. That's where you work the kinks out. You don't want to work it out when you've got hundred or two hundred thousand dollars a day being spent with a crew standing around that's not a smart or cost-effective gesture you utilize that pre-production time to make those changes i know there were a lot of rehearsals especially on stuff like the thing were there a bunch of rehearsals for this one as well yes i recall there were because there was a huge amount of choreography do you have any favorite memories of working on that one really i just think the overall dynamics the overall camaraderie you know, it was our second time out with, no, actually it was our first time out with Victor and, and uh, Dennis Dunn, and then we used him again in Prince of Darkness. Coming into that whole family, into that whole culture, it was, a, it was, it was fun. And they, you know, there would be big Chinese banquets put on, on the backside of the stage. We had two Chinese associate producers who would, you know, constantly be double checking all the signage in Chinese, all the, you know, what should be happening, what should be Cantonese, because, you know, it's the new world and it wouldn't be Mandarin. The same interesting debates between the mainland Chinese that were working on the show and the, and the, Ch- 
Chinese Americans that were working on the show and the Cantonese and it, it, you know, there was just all that stuff swirling around it, which made it really fun. And then the old Chinese guys who would be trying to sneak in a ton of swearing figure I would, I wound up learning a whole lot of old Chinese insults where they greet each other regularly with horrible profanities, which I would have to stop them from from saying to each other because then we would wind up in big trouble in the Chinese community. They were really sly dogs about it. So I would have, there were a couple of the stuntmen who would come by me and go, uh, no, this is what Victor just said too. Uh, And it would go go on like that. And Victor was the worst at, at sliding them in. He would just try and say incredibly vile things. But all the old guys would. And they 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 nod and smile and then come out with this Chinese stuff and and <laughs> inevitably someone sidle up behind me and goes you know what he just said I go oh come on and it got to I I had like four or five phrases that I knew were these traditional greetings that old Chinese guys would say to each other but they were really profane <laughs> and so you have to go ah okay guys I caught that. These days, you know, even Wes Anderson was getting into trouble with the Isle of Dogs for quote unquote cultural appropriation. I imagine there had to have been a backlash about this film. There were two trains of thought. It was here was this major motion picture with three hundred Chinese employed in non stereotype roles. And and we had Chinese on the production crew and Chinese stunt coordinators and Chinese you know, we had people from all over the world. And we were really conscientious in going off of real Chinese myths, real, I mean, mostly it was mythology. And, and it was really hearkening back to a lot of the old Chinese martial arts movies that had all kinds of mysticism and flying, flaming swords and all kinds of things. We we got attacked by APA and a couple of the groups but a whole group of our Chinese actors would go up against them in support of us. You know, it was a mixed bag. Yeah, you know, we got demonstrated against by people who really didn't know how it came together and because it was a big target in a big studio. I think it was regretful. APA demonstrated against Big Trouble in Little China with 300 Chinese in it and then gave us an award for Prince of Darkness with three Chinese in it. If you wanted to take that as a, a rule of thumb, you know, dumb people would then say, great, I only need to put cast three Chinese actors in the future. That would be a stupid reaction. I mean, you can't, you can't bend it out and do the wrong thing. You know, what it did for us was we wound up being immersed in a fascinating complex culture with some really, really great artists from all around the world. For us, it widened things. We met a bunch of actors we then used and reused. So the end result was, was great and positive. And I think a lot of people got a lot more exposure and became mainstream actors on other shows. A lot of the stuntmen get up, got up to stunt coordinators on other things. Beyond that, you, you just roll with it. Why do you think that it ultimately wasn't a successful movie at the time it came out? Because we started under uh, Larry Gordon was president of the studio. And he left the studio in the middle of our shooting, and Barry Dillard took over. And whenever that happens, as stupid as it is, the new regime never wants a success out of the old regime. 
And frankly, they had a pretty racist attitude. They weren't interested in a movie that they didn't understand, didn't see the value in, and didn't understand how to promote 300 Chinese actors. They didn't want, as the famous Mr. Diller said, he didn't want to see one fucking chink on that poster, and it was, you know, only three white people in the movie. Managed to insult everybody, and was in general just a jerk. All you can do is make the best movie you can. And I think what we've proven is that movie stands the test of time. When you see that coming down the tracks at you, all you can do is have faith that you made a great movie and you can entertain people. You can't fight the regime that doesn't want to promote that movie and doesn't care about that. The great joy we have is that throughout the years it found its audience and is listed by a lot of people as their favorite John Carpenter film. Did you know pretty quickly that it was finding its audience, or did it take a while before you said, like, people have now discovered this movie? I don't know. You kind of don't look back. You just go on to the next, to the next thing. It's the kind of thing where, where you kind of get surprised that people keep talking about it. People that get too obsessed with their box office or their awards or how things do aren't going to be very happy. You know, you, you really, it's doing the work that matters. You know, beyond that, I, I don't know what you do. It's, it's just gratifying that people have enjoyed it. Now, Jack Burton has gone on to a pretty long life, especially in the comic books. Oh, have, you, have you read Old Man Jack? That's the one that John and Anthony Birch have been writing, and that one's a hoot. That's what I was going to ask, was how much involvement John's had in these comics, so that's great to know. He's been in, involved in the in the uh, Jack Burton ones, and particularly in the Old Man Jack ones. Because I know he's a comic book fan. I know you're a comic book fan, and I know that you're right there behind Storm King Productions. But those aren't Storm King, or those those are a non. No, those are with Boom because Boom Boom is partnered with Fox, and they licensed uh, Big Trouble. But because Ross Ritchie at Boom and I are friends, he had a pretty immediate line to John. <laughs> so that worked out pretty well. So what are you working on these days at uh, at Storm King? Well, at Storm King, we're up to four comics now. Uh, we just this year launched the Tales of Science Fiction, and um, that's been going really well. We, we compromised between the ongoing series Asylum, which was you know ongoing characters and an ongoing story, and then we had uh, Tales from Halloween Night, which comes out every year in October which is an anthology of all different horror stories by all different writers and, and artists, including John and myself, and decided that there should be science fiction comics. So it's in between. It's a series of miniseries that comes out monthly. One story may last anywhere from three issues to eight issues, and those are all by different writers and artists. Those have been going really nicely. We're just wrapping up Vortex, the, the second in the series. And uh, we're about ready to start the standoff by David Scout, David J. Scout. It's pretty cool. Alien spaceship crashes into a high security prison. I mean, what could be wrong? You know, <laughs> they, they've all pretty well rocked. We've got stories for the next three years going on that. That's fun. And then we've been developing TV shows over at UCP. And yeah, so we've got about four of those coming up. They haven't announced them yet, so we're kind of fine. Okay. It looks like we've got two features about to go in elsewhere. Yes, so we're busy. 
Yeah, Storm King's alive and well. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Oh, it's great talking to you. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we can do it again one of these days, and hopefully uh, uh, your shows and your new films are very successful. Yeah, we're going to be, Storm King will be down at San Diego Comic-Con this year. So there'll be plenty of comic books, including our first uh, augmented reality cover that sits up and screams at you. I don't know if I want to see that, actually. (laughs) Anyone down in San Diego that that, uh, wants a true John Carpenter comic experience, come and check out the comic. What spurred your interest in movies? Going to movies uh, and seeing them on television as a kid. Um, I grew up, um, I guess you'd say, in the late 50s is when I you know, started to go off on my own to movie theaters in our hometown. And there were five of them, even though it was a small town. And I kind of got addicted to uh, horror films and sci-fi films. It was a pretty rich era, you know, I've been thinking about what I actually was exposed to because I suspected that it might be relevant here. And some of these, you know, were were circling through theaters or cycling would probably be a better way to describe it. Others wound up on television at the time, but things like The Day the Earth Stood Still and The Thing from Another World. I mean, I saw Donovan's Brain and I saw The House of Wax, the Vincent Price movie, and it it did, it was 19, uh, I think, 53, it scared the daylights out of me, and I actually left the theater. I have a memory of that, actually walking out of the theater in terror halfway through the movie. So, <laughs> I mean, but you like that. You know, you like to be that affected by a film. You know, the, this is an era in that period from mid to late 50s of Godzilla and them, and actually Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 56. and the fly and and then the, the hammer horror films came through and then the william castle stuff and i just I just sucked all that up i loved it well it's one thing to be a movie fan but it's another thing to actually go to school for it and what made you decide like this is going to be my career it was a halfway through college that i came upon the concept of film schools because up until that point i thought i might try to be a writer of some kind, um, maybe a teacher, but um, didn't even see a possible way to wind up in California when I was on the East Coast studying. But then we had some film courses in college, and they were, you know, theory, not production courses. But that made me aware of graduate schools existing around the country, and it was NYU and UCLA and USC that seemed to be on the top tier at that time. So I thought, that would be incredibly interesting if there were a way to study this. You know, you're in a study mode anyway, and actually, you know, stay inside an academic world and see if there's anything of a production sort that you could actually uh, study. That's not really the word, but experience. My wife and I, well, we got married right after college, and I had gotten into several of those places, but we decided we didn't want to go into New York City. And she got a teaching position in Los Angeles, so we just drove out there and checked out both USC and UCLA. And I can't remember why we chose USC, uh, but but I did, and that's where I went. How did you come to write Slither? In film school, you know, we took a lot of production classes and um, a few writing classes, but I'd always liked to write. When I got out of film school, I got this 
little scholarship to go to Warner Brothers on a work-study program. It was a USC scholarship. And you kind of got to pick where you wanted to work in the studio and see if there was any executive in that department who would be willing to have you sort of as an intern. I wanted to get into screenwriting, so I wound up in, um, you know, with the executives who were doing development and not only got to sit in on meetings when people were pitching scripts, but um, they had leaned out their uh, industry unionized uh, script analyst department and was a foolish move because it was a cost-cutting move that left the executives with the first first task of reading all the scripts that came in. So this guy I was interning for said, why would you like to read scripts and give me summaries of them? I thought, why not? And so I read so much material, two or three scripts a day, and tried to reduce it both to like a plot synopsis and maybe a paragraph of comment that I, I got a feeling of what was out there, the, the good stuff and the bad stuff. It was like a almost like an alternate universe of literature because I'd been studying, you know, English literature in college and now suddenly I'm just seeing this massive stuff that most people will never see because most scripts never get beyond the script stage. And I thought, well, if these guys can do it and some succeed and some fail, I'll write my own scripts. And I wrote Slither on my lunch hours on the Warner's lot in between all the other little responsibilities that this kind of amorphous scholarship gave to me. And then with that document, uh, my teacher from um, USC showed it to his agents because it was it was possibly a master's thesis. It was a vague thing. You could do a creative thesis if you wanted. And he showed it to his agents. And they were uh, young agents opening up a young agency, and they signed me, and I stayed with them for my entire career. And luck. There's so much luck involved. I mean, if you think about it, and as I do now, having passed through it all, I don't know how, well, it's not logical what happens to you, you know. Enormously talented people get left by the wayside, and it's just a strange business. Did I read right that there was a TV movie of Slither the following year that Slither came out? Uh, well, it was a pilot that was shot. Daryl Duke, the Canadian director, uh, he did Payday. He was a pretty good director. I wrote a pilot, and he directed it. It didn't go anywhere. I don't think it was particularly good. And I don't know if it was ever seen anywhere. It certainly wasn't, you know, it didn't go to a series. There wasn't a second episode. So unless they were dumping pilots on the air at that time for people to see, I don't think it got any sort of light of day anywhere. Barry Boswick played the role, the lead. I don't know if it exists anywhere. I mean, these things pop up suddenly now. It's worth continuing to look every now and then. You never know. How did you come to Peeper? One of the producers that my agents exposed me to early on was Erwin Winkler. I did a couple of films for him, but he gave me that book because he just optioned it. And I guess it was a writing assignment. I guess he actually had it placed at a studio. And in fact, I was offered it because I was a young, inexpensive writer. And this was no you know, big deal book. And Erwin and I got along and he respected my writing. And so suddenly, again, it's a complete fluke opportunity, you know. You meet somebody who has a book that he thinks is right for you, and you wind up getting an offer. Could easily have not happen. It was a very strange time. I mean, films, you know, you didn't have to make monster, I mean, gigantic, big-budget movies. It was an odd kind of in-between period um, when you were you know, emerging into the new world of films, but we hadn't yet established that it was going to be driven by blockbusters. So you had odd opportunities here and there. 
you know, they just came your way because they, you, there wasn't a big risk involved for the studios and they were making a lot of development deals. So I imagine this was your first time adapting a book for the screen. I think it was. I, I know I adapted this paperback called uh, Terror on Duncan Island for some producer, probably on spec. That may have preceded it. You know, it never got made. But uh, there was also that feeling then among producers that if you got a young writer and you had any kind of clout as a producer, the writer would leap at an opportunity. And it was true to uh, do spec adaptations because then they would be carried around by a producer even if the book hadn't been placed anywhere yet. And so there were a lot of things like that going on at that time. I'm always curious when it comes to adaptation as far as... I've got two questions, I guess. One is, how did you approach that project? And then two is, as you've gone through and adapted other things throughout the years, is your approach generally the same, or do you come to each one as a a new way of, here's how I'm going to have to solve this problem? Certainly, everyone is different. I mean, every every book is a different length, and you're trying to bring it down to approximately the same length screenplay. But I guess I start by, first of all, reading the material to see if I feel, if I like it, and I start scribbling. I used to just begin, you know, to underline dialogue that amused me or I thought was important and move my way through the book and try to keep in your head. And I'm early on in the process figuring out whether I'm distilling this into a feature length or it's still too long. You don't really know. I came out of uh, some, a screenwriting course at USC with this initial method of attack that was kind of silly when, in retrospect, but the, every movie has about 25 scenes. Each scene is approximately three pages long or four pages, but never really more than five. And I, I can't remember the exact number of cards, but if you multiply it, you came up with a screenplay somewhere between 105 and 125 pages, which is what everybody was sort of expecting them to be. And so when I was even conceiving of original screenplays early on, I would have this note card technique, just three by five cards, and try to crudely walk my way through the structure of the movie and make sure that I could fill those cards and and picture each one being approximately the right number of pages. And then when I would start to write initially, I would actually have a bulletin board with a thumb tacked up and try to do a card or two a day. And if you do that, a script gets written really quickly but it doesn't mean that it's a good script. And at some point, this is apart from adaptation. This is, I'm talking a little bit more about an original piece. I decided to just forego the cards completely. And because I'd written enough scripts in my own head that I thought I can kind of wing this with a, a, a general sense of where it might be going. But that makes the writing an adventure. It makes you not know what's coming next. If you don't have a card you're looking at that you're going to write tomorrow. So you have to listen to what's happening, who the characters are turning into, where the narrative suggests it might go. And just after enough time doing that, you you kind of get control of that process. And I think you take yourself to the movie in a way when you're writing it. You don't know what's going to happen next, just like the audience shouldn't. So I started doing that for the rest of of my writing career. But if it's an adaptation, you, you do have to have a little more rigorous approach. I mean... When I did Needful Things, it was like a 600-page book, and Body Snatchers is a, a much shorter novel. And so was, it was a deadfall that Keith Lommert named that book that turned into Peeper. You know, so they're, they're different every time, and a lot of them will uh, throw wonderful dialogue at you, and sometimes the writer isn't really, you know, I think it would be great to adapt an Elmore Leonard book because he's done a lot of your 
work for you, but in a lot of them, you, you know, you you end up writing most of the dialogue because there's not nothing in the book that's working for that purpose. So it's different for everyone, and I imagine every writer has a different approach, or many many different approaches among any group of writers. You ask this question. Well, did I rewrite that you write longhand rather than typing everything? Yeah, I can't. Um, well, I changed when computers came in, but I broke my collarbone in high school and missed the one semester where they taught typing. And I thought, I've said this before, it's a pretty flippant thing to say, but I thought, no big deal. What am I going to need to type for? So I'm a one-finger typist. When I first started writing, I could write longhand faster. I had a couple of women, especially one toward the end, who did all of my typing for me. And she was in LA and I fed, FedEx her stuff. And I found that when it came back typed, I could be much more objective about it because I'd never seen it in typed form. And I was able to edit myself, I think, more effectively than if I had typed it and then looked at the same thing I just typed. So I did that for for the longest time. And she got old and she passed away. And computers were coming in at the same time. So I switched over. And then, you know, you, it's uh, even though I'm still typing with one finger, it's incredibly seductive and productive to be able to move stuff around. Uh, what I finally sent her after a while would be these literally staple changes on top of stuff that she sent me, and then she would be building this puffy manuscript on her desk because I, I saw it once when I was out in L.A. It was frightening because, you know, you have arrows going to the margin, and, and, and many times you say, I think I could make this better, but what a pain it would be for Shirley if she had to actually retype this whole page because I cut a sentence and a half out or added some dialogue. So so I actually didn't do things that I felt I should do because I, the process was in the way. Even the mechanical process was in the way. So once I started using a computer, I've never stopped. And I think it's, it's helped me enormously. It's freed me up. I can move stuff around and reject it and change it without feeling like I'm burdening Shirley. Well, I guess it's nice, too, the idea of writing something, sending it to Shirley, and having that period of time where you can move on to other things, where you yes. aren't being faced with it. It's like that whole like putting the manuscript in the drawer and forgetting about it for a few months. Well, I would do a, a, a partial version of that because I certainly didn't accumulate the whole script and then send it to her. I would send her you know, 10 or 15 pages at a time, but you're right. They had to leave here FedEx. She had to do it and had to come back FedEx. So I was well past it in the script, and I had, I thought, a fairly fresh eye when, I, when it would, a package would finally arrive and I'd read it, and I'd end up marking all over it. But it was, you know, all the marks that I'd made before, before I sent it to her, even on the original pages, that weren't in my eye. I wasn't looking at them, so I thought, oh, this is like almost like somebody else's manuscript. I mean, that's exaggerating, but still, it was a different experience, and uh, it helped me enormously, I think, be, be more critical. You were talking about those times where you would write without the cards and take yourself to the movies, as you said it. What were some of those times where you would just surprise yourself and go, wow, I didn't see that coming? All throughout Big Trouble. You know, there was a structure there. You're, you're right in your uh, your remembrance that um, it was set in the Gaslight era in San Francisco. and was essentially a Western, an urban Western. I mean, a cowboy came in, and but he came into the city, and his horse was stolen, I think was the premise. But the events didn't work once I said, and they liked the idea, let's move it to a contemporary environment. And, um, I, you know, I had elevators, I had all sorts of things that weren't there in the original one because the period didn't have them. 
And so I just decided that I'm going to not wing it in the sense of um, I don't care where this goes because it was an assignment and people were paying me money and expecting a, you know, a, a functioning screenplay that could be hopefully shot. But I never really did know exactly what was going to happen. I, I would just be reading stuff about you know certain kinds of rituals or customs or weapons or things they believed in and try to come up with a scene that actually was a movie scene that spun off of that and miraculously fit into what had happened the day before and in the script. It was a real joyride. And, it, and, and, you know, when you're doing it and it's working and sometimes it doesn't, it's the greatest kick because you think something's talking to me. You know, this movie is pouring out of my fingers. I'm not quite in control of it, which is what I think the audience should feel like, especially in that movie where anything could happen because all the rules of normal reality had been suspended. So let's see if I can get to the end that way. And I, and I pretty much did it in one ferocious pass. Well, Shirley was typing behind me though. So I did get to look at what I did, but I never, fortunately never wrote myself into a corner. I couldn't get out of because Jack was always there to somehow leap out of it. You know, great line that Howard Zee used to say to me. I can't remember where he got up, but with one giant leap, Jack was free. The old serial notion that you can somehow make this thing work if you just persevere and keep at it. Yeah, I guess there is that feel of you never know what's going to be behind that door when you open it. I think when I see clips from it, when when he says, uh, he pulls the door open and it's just wall-to-wall enemy on the other side and he slams it and says something, I don't know, I think we're trapped or something like that. I mean, I remember that I didn't know what was behind that door until he opened it because I might have been at a point where I was going to sh- you know, have him open it and step into a tunnel and then fall through the floor. I mean, that was the sort of feeling I had when I was writing it. Things just seemed to be there when I needed them. That's a great feeling. It just doesn't happen all the time. Going back a little bit before that, what was it like working with Peter Bogdanovich on Nickelodeon? That was a one-off experience. How do I describe this? Erwin Winkler, again, would throw ideas out at me, and he said, I'd like to make a movie about the silent era in Hollywood. Would you be interested? And I well, I mean, I'm not disinterested, but what do you have in mind? And he said, I have nothing in mind other than I think it was a pretty wild and woolly time. And obviously it was the beginning of a, an art form or an entertainment form that, you know, that is sort of part of the fabric of life now. And I said, well, let me do some research. I mean, when, when exactly in the silent era? And he didn't really care. And so I went a little bit deeper than Nickelodeon uh, forward uh, and still in the silent era. But I wrote a script called Starlight Parade that um, I, I can't remember a lot of the details of it after all these years, but it moved more into the studio system. I was on the cusp of sound coming in. And that script, Irwin sold to 20th Century Fox for, at that time, a, a very nice amount of money. So it got some publicity in Variety or in Reporter or both. They hadn't decided... They, they liked the script, but they hadn't made any moves yet with it for uh, production. And all of a sudden, we got a call, or Irwin did, I guess, from Peter Bogdanovich, saying, I am also, I think the Sue Mengers called for him, I also am developing a film on the silent era, and I think this might be a conflict with yours. Where, you know, what's, what state? What do you, what's going on? And uh, could I read it? And Irwin sent him the script. And Bogdanovich liked the script, but he did not want to do something that I'm, I'll just say 10 years beyond the beginning of this true beginning of the movies. He was working on something more that was a 
so early on that people had to figure out what it was they were doing even. And um, he asked if he could meet me. And I remember he he was cutting, um, oh, at long last love <laughs> on the soundstage. I mean, he was actually uh, scoring it. Uh, and so they were scoring into the evening and I was supposed to go and meet him. And Frank Marshall um, was a friend of mine, and he turned out to be the guy who was working for Peter, and he met me and took me into the room and introduced me to Peter and then left us alone in this studio office. And Peter said fairly quickly, what I'd like to do, I like your writing. What I'd like to do is ask the studio to put that script that they just bought from you in a drawer, and the two of us collaborate on a movie that takes place in you know the year he wanted it to take place in with all the more primitive aspects of the movie business. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, I'm fairly early in this business, and this guy's had a lot of successful films, but he was in the process of making one that wasn't going to be successful, but, you know, who knew? And so he was an extraordinarily influential director, and I'm hearing this thing, and I'm thinking, wow, I mean, I'm partnered in a way with Irwin on this. He should be in this room hearing this crazy thing, and I... I'm also thinking, would a studio just do that, pay this large amount of money for a script and then put it in a drawer? And I said, um, I don't know what exactly. I didn't say no. I probably thumpered around and said, well, let me talk to Irwin and let me think about this. But at any rate, what came very quickly was, you know, we might as well try this because if he can do it, we're the one who's going to, our movie will suffer because, you know, he's he's got much more Cloud and the studio will probably panic thinking Bogdanovich is developing this. They don't know at what stage exactly and uh, not race forward with ours and get into going a foot race with him. We said, go ask the studio. And he went in and pitched it and they said, uh, okay, we'll put the one we just bought in the drawer and hire Richter all over again and hire you and you, you guys write us a movie. And that's how it got going. But it was a very unusual experience for me because I, I never collaborate with people I work with directors very carefully, but when you actually talk about writing, I, I think a writer, I believe a screenplay should have a voice, not be the product of, you know, multiple people. That's why I'm in big trouble if it became irrelevant because I had to put that script completely aside. And so it wasn't like I was writing inside of the, the other two guys. But with Peter, um, I didn't even know what the process was going to be like. I didn't know who was going to actually pick up a pen and write something down. And it turned out that we evolved a system that wasn't very productive from my point of view, and is that we would do the note, the note cards because I told him about them, and he said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And, of course, when two people are working, it's probably a really good idea because you, you can look at something and talk about it on a, you know, on a schematic on the wall or something. Well, he then said, you know, here's what I think you should do. You should write the first version of every scene and send it to me, and I will rewrite it, and I'll send it back to you, and then you can rewrite it, and we can do this until we both say, this scene works. I, well, I mean, what are you going to say? Okay. So I would write a scene with my uh, you know, film school notion that it should be three to five pages long, and do a couple of them, and send them to Peter, and he would write them, and he had totally different hours from what I did. I mean, he was up all night, so he would call me at three in the morning. I mean, the phone would ring, and it was, holy shit, you know. It would be Peter, and he said, I've, I've worked on the scene, and I think it's much better. Let me read it to you. And I said, you know, I was asleep. That's okay, you got to hear this, because he's a wildly enthusiastic guy. And he would read me the scene, and almost every time it would double in length at least. And, uh, the, you know, then I would get my hands on it and 
I can't, you know, sometimes I would just make obvious cuts and other times I was just starting to feel this is not working, but I, you know, I'm not going to be a jerk about this and have this battle royal with them because if we get an overlong script, maybe it'll be decent and we can cut it back. And we wound up with something like 230 pages or something. He went into Columbia with that. And I did not see this meeting, but it was apparently a rather flamboyant pitch. And he convinced them not only was he going to cut it somewhat, but that it was going to play so fast that it was irrelevant how long it was. It was a feature-length script. Don't don't panic. And they bought it. I mean, they bought that idea. And so we were in pre-production. And I know we kept rewriting it and tightening it and doing stuff to it, but I don't think we fundamentally reduced it in any, you know, like, it's now only 130 pages. And during that whole thing, there was um, a big issue with Sybil Shepherd. He wanted her in the movie, and, you know, at long last love would come out, and the studio didn't want her in the movie. It was a very stressful experience, but I kind of liked him all along, all the time it was going on. Because there's part of him that is so wonderfully take charge about the movies and how much he knows about them. I mean, he knew Alan Dwan, the silent film director, and the guy was out in Malibu, uh, in his twilight years, and Peter had written, I think, even a little monograph on Alan Dwan. So he said, let's get in the car and go see it. I want you to meet Alan Dwan. You know, this is like a pioneer of silent films. The guy was just sitting in his apartment, and he talked to us for quite a while. Those were really heady times. You know, I didn't know what I was... Peter was living in a large Spanish colonial revival from the 20s uh, in Bel Air, and um, it, it all, you know, he was sort of living the romance of that early... Hollywood era, while he was hosting Orson Welles as a guest in the house, you know. we were working in Peter's office, which was probably um, a study once that was appended. It was adjoined by a bedroom, but the bedroom had the door closed all the time, and I just that could have been a closet for all I knew. But Peter had one point had to go somewhere for about ten or fifteen minutes. He had to attend to something somewhere else in the house, and I'm sitting on this big sofa, sort of sinking into it, uh, taking notes based on what we just said for an hour or so. And the door cracked open in the other, at the other end of the room, and Orson Welles emerged in this gigantic caftan. And he was looking straight ahead because the door out of the bedroom lined up with the door out of the study, and obviously he was going to pass through the study and leave. And so I'm slouched into this thing, and I see this enormous figure moving through, and I and he's like three feet from me as he passes by, and I realize, holy shit, that is actually Orson Welles, but he doesn't see me, so I don't want to startle him, and uh, I didn't say anything, and he just passed through and left. Now I'm sitting there alone and waiting for Peter to come back, and when he did come back, I said, I think Orson Welles is staying with you, right, because he just walked through this room. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, he stays here every time he's in L.A., because well, he has stayed in so many hotels and stiffed them. He's not welcome anymore. And I never saw him again. I don't know where he went into the house, but I was there, you know, every day for a while and for hours when I was there. And it was just this one sighting that lasted about 10 seconds. I know that even when he was talking with Orson Welles for This is Orson Welles, he kept talking about this silent film project that he was working on. But I had no idea that it was this kind of weird conglomeration but not really and you know putting your story to the side and then bringing you in as a writer i had no idea that that was all the backstory to this yeah it's a pretty rich backstory i've never experienced anything like it i part of me said initially they're not going to do this the studio because they just paid this amount of money 
And, you know, I learned a lot about and the, the dangers of being in of a studios being in the thrall of somebody who they're not judging harshly enough, not just being realistically critical, but sort of falling over and saying, you know, well, you've had all these successful films, so go ahead and do what you want to do. And it's not healthy for Peter either. I mean, you know, it didn't, it didn't produce his finest work, or certainly not mine. Yikes, and you start to get really disillusioned. I mean, if that settled in early, I thought, I, I can't make a career of this because I'm going to keep running into these nutty experiences that are going to sink me. I don't know what to do about it except just keep plugging ahead, but I, I did because I had no other choice, really. At the time, there wasn't anything else I wanted to do. I really wanted to make cool movies, you know. Well, you're talking about that interesting time, those those early 70s, late 60s times when we didn't really have the idea of the blockbuster and we could, you know, movies like Slither and Peeper and Nickelodeon could come out. And you're right there on the cusp of, you know, 76, Nickelodeon coming out and Jaws coming out, and then 77 with Star Wars coming out. So how did that affect you as far as what projects maybe you were offered or got to start working on? Well, I, I tend to have a vague memory of exactly what year I did what thing, but it certainly changed the tenor of the town. There was no doubt about the fact that the studio started looking for the next iterations of those movies that you just mentioned, you know, Star Wars and Jaws. And I think it was a, a, a slow erosion of, a, of, of faith in the, in the small movie. Because I came in, you know, Five Easy Pieces, Midnight Cowboy, all that stuff was what was making money and what was making everybody proud. And um, it changed underneath me. And, uh, you know, I mean, if, if I look at the movies that I did after that, they, they were like, I mean, even Body Snatchers aspires to be something larger than, you know, just a story about people. I mean, they started to look toward more fantastical ideas. And those were more of the things that came, that were being offered to writers at the time. But I, I mean, I kept trying to, to, you know, get jobs that actually uh, required writing human characters and even if it's comedic, somewhat naturalistic stuff. And um, I mean, it, it wasn't entirely a, a friendly climate for that. And the longer, you know, I stayed out there, the more I realized that they were expecting anything you did to be able to play globally. The dialogue was getting uh, less respect. That's why for me, Big Trouble was an incredible opportunity to just say, okay, I'm going to write a, a film that, even though it has all the trappings of an action film, really requires an eccentric character to make the story work at the core. A guy who can't shut up is actually, that's a subversive move to make at that time, to, to make it driven so much by language and um, arrogance on, you know, naive arrogance on Jack Burton's part, because scripts were getting terse, the dialogue was getting terser and terser, so it could be subtitled or dubbed for global consumption. And man, I we see where we are now. <laughs> Make believe movies that, you know, cost so much money. I mean, even our Dracula was was modest budget shot in England, you know, you didn't have you didn't have money to burn, so you had to be more resourceful. So I, I kinda saw that transit I experienced the trans uh, transition. I don't know that I was fully aware of how you know, how, how extreme it was going to become out there, but it certainly has. It takes a lot of chutzpah to go back and readapt or give new life to uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers after we had the original, which was such a great film. Yeah, it was. Phil Kaufman's 78 Invasion of the Body Snatchers 
that is one of those rare instances where I think I like the remake or the new adaptation even more than the original, just because there are so many new ideas that you brought to the table. I think I would probably feel the same way, but I'm I'm a little bit invested in the 78. But I think we are now um, looking for more from our movies. Um, and no, I actually have to take that back. I don't think we are now, but I think we were in 78. More textures, more nuances, certainly speaking to our sense of what was scary at the time. And, you know, the, the 1950s version was really potent. I mean, I saw it in a theater, and it, it was chilling, but it was of a time. And it looks a little bit like a 50s movie now. So when I was asked to adapt it, this was a very strange arrangement. Bob Solo, who produced it, had acquired the rights and sold it to the studio. And they said, okay, go get a writer and a director. And he did them independent. He did those two little requests independent of each other and called me. And I don't remember why he knew me and offered me the project. And I said, well, I'll, my quick answer is yes, because you're talking about updating it. So it's not like, you know, there aren't things to be done. But I haven't read the book, and, I, and I'd like to do that. And I did, and fairly quickly, he just sat down and, you know, read it, because I thought he was going to give it to somebody else. If I really decide I want to do this, you've got to act. And when we, when my agent said, okay, he will, and they started making the deal, making it, I spoke to Bob on the phone, and he said, well, we're just about signed Phil Kaufman, because he's going to direct it. I happened to know Phil just casually through a mutual friend, actually Rhonda Gomez, who uh married Howard Zeef finally and actually was the one the person who got slithered to him and through all those connections uh, I met a lot of people and Phil was one of them so I thought that's great because I respect this guy but holy cow Bob what if you were telling me the name now of somebody who I really didn't feel comfortable making a movie with and Phil must have felt comfortable enough because he knew I was going to be adapting it I don't think we worked very closely on the first draft. I know we met and talked, but he may have been actually making another movie. So we quickly, without thinking a lot, decided, we, I don't think we debated putting it in anything other than a small contemporary town, somewhere up around San Francisco, because that's where Phil lived. And, you know, it was a kind of free-thinking time where you thought you might be able to slip things by people, that, you know, thematically, that they wouldn't notice what was going on because they were so involved in themselves and in all sorts of self-help programs and stuff. So um, I wrote a draft and set it in uh, a San Francisco town that Phil sort of said, this is the model for it. And I don't even know. We may have gone to it, and I looked at it a little bit. Just, again worked my way through the book, changing as it occurred to me that this, you know, this worked or that didn't work, but I knew I had a solid structure and concept and themes and all that underneath me. And then I got to the end and gave it to him. He liked it. And we began a pre-production. Mike Metavoy was running the studio and he liked it. So we got a green light right away. And we were kind of working on the script one day in, in, in an office. And I think we'd heard Elvis died because he did when we were in, in this early pre-production stage. And, I don't know what we started talking about, but one of us suggested that maybe we had misplaced this movie and it should be in a big city. It might have been Phil because he, you know, he was experiencing San Francisco, and I think he, that's a more visceral thing to experience than the L.A. I was in because I was wasn't wandering all over the city, and I thought it was a great idea if I if he proposed it and if I proposed it, I thought I had a great idea, but it was scary because we were, I don't think we were more than seven weeks or so away from production and 
you had a case where these the two central creators had suddenly talked themselves into real insecurity about the fundamental choice they made to put it in a small town. So we, what do we do? And Phil said, well, let's go down the hall right now and knock on Mike Metavoy's office door and tell him that this is what we think we should do and see what happens. And I think he instinctively thought it was a good idea. But I know he said right away to Phil, you can't change the budget and you can't, you got to shoot it up in the San Francisco area because, I mean, you know, crews were being, oh, preparations were being made. We were casting the thing. And can you possibly get this thing ready in seven weeks? If, if not the whole thing, uh, you know, enough of it so that we know it works and you're starting to shoot and Rick is writing on the back end of it or, or not necessarily the back end, the middle because, you know, you don't shoot front to back. So, um, he gave us his blessing, which was a really courageous thing to do, but I know it was the right choice because it definitely was a better script. And I just began writing it as, you know, as, as well and as fast as I could. And we would go to San Francisco and now we could look at different locations, different possibilities, come up with a different job for Donald's character, started thinking of it as a more um, vibrant, urban, paranoid thriller, sci-fi thriller. And um, I, Pretty much, my wife and I pretty much moved to San Francisco and lived in a hotel for most of the production because I was on the set a lot and trying not only to respond to what the actors were bringing to it and what kind of energy they had amongst themselves, but also continuing to polish the narrative and keep it going forward on a daily basis. Uh, And at one point, when we turned the final draft into the studio, about halfway through production, they did something that I, I don't know if people do anymore, but they gave it to a timer. And this person read through the script and decided it wasn't feature length. And we were halfway through it. Phil was quite rightly convinced that it was feature length. And I remember somebody coming to the set and telling us that. And I, he dug in his heels and he said, I, I don't have to pad this thing, it, but trust me, it's a, it's a feature length. I, well, of course, it was a little too long when he got his first cut together. Of course, it was feature length. We knew it. I, I don't know who timed it, but that was a dangerous kind of process because somebody would have to decide how long a director was going to take to execute an action sequence. And that's every director's different on that. You know, so somebody came up with, um, you know, you're 10 minutes shy of whatever they thought was a magical number. And so that went on throughout the whole production. And, um, and then when we decided that there was going to be uh, that Donald was going to be compromised and become a pod. Um, we kept that a secret from everybody, but I think Mike Metavoy. And I didn't write that into the script. I didn't write an alternate ending in, but I think it just said, I don't know, to be, you know, to be written, to be determined or whatever. And until the actual shooting of that scene, I had written it, but it was, wasn't included in the script. Passed outside that that day, I guess, because it was going to happen in the same location and it was going to be the same characters. And I guess maybe they were going to run an embrace as far as the, uh, the people making the movie thought, you know. And then so you know, there was there was a lot of wonderful, I don't know, fly by the seat of your pants stuff in that movie. And I think I can see it in the film that it wasn't an overindulgent budget or schedule or anything like that. It was just the kind of movie making I enjoy. It is, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass, but it is so well done. And just, I love, well, I love the chemistry between the actors in that movie as well. It's luck in a way, because even though you know they're all good actors, you can't bring them together. You don't get the budget to bring them together long enough to discover somebody is really not going to work. So, you know, there are 
Phil handled it beautifully. I mean, he, he chose well and uh, created an atmosphere on the set where people were excited about what they were doing. And every now and then there'd be tensions. It's inevitable because, you know, somebody thought you were going to do something slightly differently. But for the most part, it was a pretty smooth production. That's the stuff that's fun for a writer to see. You know, when like Jeff Goldblum being able to, like in that bookstore, do that scene the way he did it. I mean, he's inward and outward all at the same time. I mean, you, you can sort of write that, but I didn't know Jeff at the time. And so I didn't know, well, initially I didn't even know he was going to be cast, but even when he was, I didn't really know how much he could do with so little because it was, you know, not a big role in that scene. And you're right. I mean, that there's stuff that just came alive when they did it. And when Veronica Cartwright has some chilling moments. She said, why do we always expect metal ships? It can make me shiver, you know, and so I, I agree. Uh, it was it was really fun to do it. And then toward the end, uh, in post-production, Phil asked me to write a lot of um, dialogue that would be, well, not dialogue, but uh, uh, voices that would be coming over intercoms and, you know, uh, just to sort of give it atmospherics. And that was really fun because, I mean, there was a director trusting a writer and right at the very end asking you to contribute more. Those are the experiences that I cherish, and then there were those others where I would think, oh, why am I doing this? You know, I, yikes. So you had been a writer for well over a decade when you came to Buckaroo Bonsai, and I'm curious, how did you make that move to directing, and what was it like directing somebody else's work? Gosh, what was it like? The mid-70s. See, Mac Rush and I both went to Dartmouth, and he was a 71 and I was a 68. We were there one year but we didn't know each other. We subsequently realized, though, that Arthur, when Arthur Penn brought Bonnie and Clyde to the college and showed it, he had a question and answer session upstairs in a room in a student center, and only about 15 people went, and Mac and I both were there. We didn't know, I mean, I don't know if we were sitting next to each other or what, but that was sort of the beginning of a very sort of um, fortuitous relationship, because after I got out of college, he had a book published that he wrote in college. It was um, Arkansas Adios, a very short novel that was reviewed really well in an alumni magazine. And I got it and read the novel. I thought it was terrific. And I'd been reading what I thought were bad writers for Warner Brothers, you know, because I was getting everybody who wanted to write a screenplay. Was, it seemed like I had to cover it. And he was such a marvelous writer that I, I wrote him a letter saying, if you want to, uh, even I don't know what you're doing, but if you want to, uh, I wrote through his publisher. If you want to uh, even entertain the notion of writing for the movies, I think you could you know, be successful at it. And he wrote and thanked me. And then um, one day I got a phone call because he had my phone number. I gave it to him out of the blue that he was in L.A. in a motel. He'd taken a plane to L.A. and with the intention of calling me. But Max was like that. He wouldn't warn me he was coming, and I happened to be home. So I went and picked him up and. My wife and I made him a dinner and found him a place in an apartment building across from us, and I introduced him to Erwin Winkler. And as he was getting little pitches from Erwin, would you like to do this or that, he told us one night about this serial he had going in his head, Buckaroo Bandy, B-A-N-D-Y, who was a country-western um, scientist, I think, was the, the two roles he had at that time. He wasn't a doctor yet. And, uh, it, and, and Mac has a very dry sense of humor, and it just sounded really really funny and we gave him a very small amount of money because you know we had delusions of we're going to be a production company and he, and he started writing scripts for us 
for Buckaroo, and he would lose confidence 30 pages in with one narrative he'd come up with, and he'd put it down after showing us pages. And I'd, I, you know, I'd give him some input, and then he'd come back saying, "Well, I don't like that story anyway, so here's another one." And he did that about four or five times, and he would generate once a treatment for one, uh, 60 pages of one, 20 of another. Got to the end of one whole script. And I didn't know what to do with it at that time because it was very, well, it was Buckaroo-like stuff. And I don't even remember if we tried to set it up. I mean, I couldn't have set it up anywhere. But I partnered with Neil Canton later on in, in a thing we called Atlantic Pictures. And we were looking for material. And I had these 200 pages of all the things that Mac had written, you know, just like a, a sampler of they stops and starts. And I gave him to Neil, and he liked them very much. And he said, I know, you know, Sidney Beckerman is close to David Beagleman, um, and everybody at that time was thinking about Raiders of the Lost Ark being, oh, you know, serials. They, that stuff works. So uh, Sidney liked it. I, he kind of would like anything. And we, he gave it to David, and David liked it enough to say the next day, I don't want to buy the world of Buckaroo Banzai. You know, the implication that, you know, I'd buy all these stories and stuff. But I will commission a screenplay based on this one. It was called Lepers from Saturn. And uh, it turned into Electroids from Planet 10. And I'll hire Mac Rush to write the script. And then when we went through several drafts of it, and Beagleman decided he did want to make it, he asked me pretty much out of the blue, because I would have been a producer, if I wanted to direct it. And I don't know why he... I don't know why he felt that way. I mean, he's not the kind of guy you would get close to or he's a very cold, distant sort of person. I never understood what his what his thinking was on anything and then you know, finally he kills himself. So the whole thing was sort of weird. But I said absolutely I would because I was getting disillusioned enough with a lot of the experiences with other directors and I loved this material. I just I I, I just found it incredibly funny and smart and was being offered an opportunity that I, I just said, oh, let's do it, let's try. We did a couple more polishes, and then he gave it a green light, and we began trying to assemble a cast that somehow might catch the spirit of what was on the page. Everything was there, but it didn't immediately say that when you start to actually shoot this thing, you know going in what the tone is really going to be, because there's hidden humor in some of the stuff that Mac writes, and it'll erupt when a good actor delivers it deadpan. Nobody's going for humor. We're just going to do this material. So that was that experience. It was a real revelation as, you know, it started to evolve. And I think a revelation in a negative way for Beagleman, because he, he clearly was not a Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it was going to, and Jordan Cronenworth was the original cinematographer. I, I thought Blade Runner was what, the most beautiful movie I'd seen apart from Dr. Strangelove in black and white. Jordan said he would do it, so we start. So we had all sorts of plans for a, a same kind of comic tone, but a moodier look to play against. So you actually somehow felt there might be real jeopardy, but it was still an absurd situation. He shot the operating theater the first. That was my first day, and when the studio saw that, when Beagleman saw that, he went crazy because it was. Uh, all the light was focused on the brain that was being operated on as it was. We went into an operating theater and saw what a, what neurosurgery looked like. Uh, and he said, no, it's just not like that. There's a bright lights everywhere in the room and there's a, you know, a ring of seats around the edge where interns are leaning over looking down and a real television version, an old thing. And he, from that moment on, he just was determined to get rid of Jordan by hook or by crook. And, 
and really did subvert him. They screwed around in the MGM lab and messed up his dailies, made him look overexposed. And Jordan was beside himself, and he had um, Vilmo Zygsman came on the set one night with his light meters and Jordan's. They were comparing, you know, getting the same readings, and then the dailies would come back looking shitty. And one day, Beagleman just took me aside and said very early on, um, well, not exactly took me aside. We went upstairs and, God, I don't remember the name of it, but a real creepy mafia kind of restaurant in, in Beverly Hills. And uh, I was, after shooting, I was to go upstairs and meet with him and, in this big function room that had, you know, like a table in the middle, that kind of very sinister environment with a couple people eating with Beagleman. And he came in and told me that basically he had hired Fred Conencamp. He'd seen the locations. He was willing to do the movie. He was, uh, that he, Beagleman, would be firing Jordan at the end of the week, the sequence we were shooting, which was a nightclub. And if I didn't like it, he was going to shut the whole movie down right then and there. And I thought, this is off the charts. I mean, I've got so many people who are committing to, to this movie <clears throat> who will just be fired the next day. They have no deals. You know, they're not going to... All the crew and all those people. Plus, we were actually making it. And we and um, I don't know. I said, I mean, I'm not happy, but I'm not going to walk away from this thing. So he did fire him three days later. It was one of the most painful things I've gone through because I was working with Jordan for three days knowing this was the end of his tenure here. And he's a great cinematographer. The, some, the best-looking stuff in the movie is his hand. But Fred was a great guy, Fred Conan-Camp. He inherited Jordan's light package. You know, and there were two trailers full of fluorescent lights and weird stuff. And Jordan wasn't going to—you weren't going to see the lights. He was going to put them on the floor in odd places. And as people moved around, they would pass through these eerie glows. But Fred, when I explained that to him, he said, you know, I don't know how to do that. What's he talking about? People will step on them. So he started to incorporate them. You can see them in the movie in odd places, in Yo-Yo Dine and stuff. He never really could get his head around. You know, he grinned and laughed about it, like, what the hell are we doing here, really? What is this movie about? And I just said, pretend the whole thing is not happening on Earth. Even Yo-Yo Dine, just pretend it's not happening on Earth and let your imagination go. So he got really into it, but it wasn't Jordan Cronin with light. It wasn't, um, I'll give you one quick example the bunker up in the beginning of the movie that's monitoring the jet car test has a huge slice in it on the wall, which is letting in desert light, and it's kind of like one of those bunker viewing slits. And it was designed that way with Mike Riva, brilliant, brilliant production designer, hand-in-hand with Jordan to send in through this relatively dark room because everybody was looking at monitors and they didn't want to wash everything out so that there'd be glows scattered around the room a hot streak of desert light slicing across the room at eye level. I think it was the Secretary of Defense who was going to be revealed because he was sitting on in the beginning of the scene. He was going to rise at some key moment in the middle of some speech and just his face was going to land in this slash of light. There were going to be in moments like that all throughout the movie. And I could never convince Fred that he had to put so much light outside that he created that slice. It was a set. And so right now, it's just bleeding light into the room, and when somebody stands up into it, it's like it's not there. There's no dramatic reveal. So you're constantly deprived of storytelling tools. And that's why Body Snatchers, with Mike Chapman working hand-in-hand with Phil, has those nuances, has those moods. And with Buckaroo, we had to do kind of a big shift and say, no, it's going to be flatter. The movie's going to look less like it's got some gutsy edges playing up against Max crazy plotting and dialogue, it's going to look maybe more of a piece, which is not the end of the world, but it's not as ambitious. It's just um, 
it just is what it is. And you're always, you know, worrying that there's shadows on the wall from the too many lights hitting an actor and, you know, like the three shadow silhouette on the wall, <laughs> way too much light. That, that, that went on for the whole movie, but somehow it got to the end and it exists. And I'm really glad we did because, you know, what if we didn't? What if we all just caved and, and walked away? So. How on earth did they decide to market that film? Because when you try to describe that movie to somebody, it just, it never does it justice. No. Well, clearly, Beagleman lost faith in it as he was watching dailies. I mean, initially, he came to the set. Um, the second second group of scenes we shot were out on the desert. So we, we shot one day in the hospital, and that was Jordan Cronenworth. And then we traveled to the desert, and I had had three days or something like that of rehearsal with the full cast, and I had Mac there, Mac Roush, and I wanted him to you know, be able to transcribe or embellish any changes that came as a result of the rehearsal, and also to make some blocking notes for me, because we did crudely block the scenes. Because I was intimidated. I mean, there's, there's a lot of scenes with multiple people in it, and I'm directing my first film, so I thought this is a prudent thing for a director to do is to have the writer there and have him not expand the scene, but maybe expand the uh, amount of space it takes up on the page because he's breaking a long speech in half and and saying somebody's going to you know walk across the room. It's as basic as that, but I didn't want to forget that six weeks later that that looked cool when somebody did that. So while we were out at the desert, Mac had turned the stuff in already, and it was being typed, I guess, the day we were in the hospital. And it was given to Beagleman that night, and we got word that the script had gotten 10 pages longer. And that Beagleman was in a blind rage because we had a completion bond, and that was attached to both the length of the script, but also to the budget and the shooting schedule. And I got word, I'm in the middle of this second second day, that Beagleman wanted me to know that he was coming to the desert to talk to me about this thing, this horrible thing that I had done. And I said to Neil Canton, I can't even read what Mac wrote. I hope he didn't write 10 new pages of material. But if you can read it, I can at least have your input and deal with Beagleman when he gets here. And Neil read it and said, no, it's got stage directions in it. It's nothing new in it. It's the same schedule we can keep. And it doesn't. there's nothing in it that increases the budget. So I thought, this is going to be pretty simple. I mean, it's ridiculous for Beagleman to not have done that himself and get, I don't know, drive out here, or have somebody drive him out here, but it's going to happen. I can't stop it. So at the end of photography that day, I had to meet him in a, another little tiny function room in a, ho- in a hotel we were staying in, and I will never forget this thing, this moment. I said, before you, you know, we get into this, I want you to know that we are going to stay on budget and on schedule, and I think I'll do a more efficient job because what made it longer were notes taken in rehearsal that actually have blocking in them, and I'm not going to have to reinvent all that. And he said to me, John Milius tried to convince me of stuff like this by picking up a chair and throwing it across the room. You're trying to beat me with logic, and I won't let that happen. That that leaves you kind of high and dry. And I said, well, I'm sticking to that assessment of what just happened. That, And he said, okay. You'll be getting a deal memo from my studio that I'm going to ask you to sign. And it came, I think, I don't know if it came while we were still in the desert, but it was a deal memo that was a revision of my original contract. And it asked me to sign it and say that if I went a day over schedule, and I was the cause of it, uh, I would have to pay for that day out of my salary. Now, I was being paid $50,000 to direct the entire movie, 
and it probably cost, I don't know, 15 or 20 at that time, maybe $25,000 a day to shoot this movie. So I thought, well, my agent said, no way, you're not signing a thing like this. And I said, he will shut the movie down. It's that basic. And against everybody's advice, I signed the thing. So now I have this, Neil knew it and Mac knew it, but I didn't want to tell the cast that because it just seemed the strangest thing, you know? And I, I mean, if we got rained out, it wasn't my responsibility, but it's a very uh, vague, amorphous sort of thing. If you lose time because it looks like you're taking too long to get a scene done, whose fault is that, you know? When we were shooting the jail scene, I think, Peter Weller and Ellen Barkin started to get on each other's nerves and were kind of playing games with each other and close-ups and stuff and knocking each other off stride. And I was losing the day, and we didn't even have that location the next day. I mean, that was a one day you got this empty prison in L.A., and you can shoot this scene, and then you got to get out of here, and you got other commitments the next day anyway. And I thought, holy shit, this is going to... This is going to be not only a disaster on the production level, because we can't, I don't think we can come back here tomorrow, uh, but, I mean, there goes like $30,000 or something. Uh, so I took the two of them aside, and I said, look, I didn't want to tell you all this, but I told them that story. And amazing, they, they just bonded, you know, as creative people, and told the rest of the cast. And from that point on, it was the holy war between all of us and Beagleman. It, it was a very strange experience. And we had the same thing. I'm, I know I'm saying things that people who read about this movie at all know all about, but the red glasses issue, we put red glasses on Buckaroo when he was in the um, press conference. It was the first time he wore them. And Beagleman had an executive named Mike Nathanson on, on my set every day just to watch me to make sure that I was not being irresponsible. And we weren't behind schedule at all. But when Beagleman saw the dailies the next day, and Buckaroo was standing there with the red glasses on. That was as strange and as outrageous to him as the, the neurosurgery theater where the lights were on the, the patient. And he sent Nathanson back the next day to say to me that I had to shut, he was shutting down production in the middle of the day, and that I had to go to his office on the lot and meet him. So we walked across the lot with the production shut down. Nobody knows what the hell's going on, just that we, we're not shooting right now because Rick has to take a meeting with David Beagleman. And he'd seen them earlier on Peter and challenged me and said, how many more times are you going to use them in this movie? Because it's on film, for one. And I had no idea. It wasn't a big you know, plot to put a lot of red, sunglasses, red glasses in it. So I said, um, one, uh, twice, only twice. I just made it up, only twice. Because I didn't, I didn't care. I didn't even need to see them one more time. And Sidney Beckerman at that time had hurt, was in that little encounter somewhere and was now in the second meeting when Beagleman was saying, you told me you weren't going to use them again. Whether I was allowed three times and I was now using them for the third is becoming fuzzy in my head, but I, was, I had crossed the line in Beagleman's mind. But I know I hadn't crossed it in what we all agreed to, and I said, no, 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 this is the last time because you said I could use them, let's say, X number of times. And he said I did not. And the only thing Sidney Beckerman ever did to stick up for me was raise his hand and in effect say, David, you did. You told him he could use them three times, two times, whatever. And Beagleman, so you could see he was being told by a contemporary, a friend, a, you know, a colleague, a, a drinking, gambling buddy, that he was wrong. And he, he had to eat it. And he turned to me again. It's always vindictive. And he said, all right, okay, I'll accept what Sidney's saying. But if you use them once more, the movie is shut down. 
And, you know, I fortunately did not intend to use them once more. And the same, the watermelon is related to this as well, because we knew from what had happened in the desert when he came up and screamed about the lighting of the operating theater and what happened when he saw red sunglasses, that he was watching those dailies like I imagine Trump watches Mueller, just getting seething at everything. And at some point, we weren't hearing a lot of shit anymore. So we thought, is there a possibility that, that he's broken, that we've worn him down, that he, he hates this movie, but he's not going to, can't quite pull the plug on it because there's no real reason. So Mike Riva was coming into the, um, the, well, the location one day, which is, you know, an abandoned, uh, I guess, uh, Armstrong rubber factory or tire factory that we were shooting Yoyodyne in. And on the way in, he passed one of those um, Chicano uh, roadside fruit stands, and they were selling watermelons. So Riva, not knowing what he was going to do with them, bought like 20 watermelons. And because we had talked about um, the conformist, there's a scene in the conformist where the desk is inexplicably covered with walnuts just sitting there. They, nobody comments on them. They're not part of the scene, but they are paving the whole desk. And we laughed about that. And he said, well, I'm going to do something with the watermelons. Because if I do something crazy enough, and I had conversations with this with Mike about this, and nobody says anything, we're going to know they're not watching our dailies anymore. So we had this little walkthrough. I was just finding interesting nooks and crannies in this building that I could walk guys through in, in, the, in the chase or search, whatever. And there was this fantastic room with that incredible green machine that looked like it was designed to put pressure on things for whatever reason, to make them a certain shape or destroy them to see how much stress they could take. And I said, put, put, put a watermelon in there and we'll crank the thing down right onto the top of it. And then when Jeff and Pepe walk through, they will have that. We just made that up. What's the watermelon doing there? I'll tell you later. And we thought it, when Beagleman, if he doesn't go batshit, he never saw it. And then we heard not a word about it. So then we just really pulled out all the stops and, you know, you know, like they're making that big sphere that falls out of the tree and it's being shaped on a wire cage with, uh, by gun shooting styrofoam, liquid styrofoam that then hardens. And the wardrobe guy started screwing around in the uh, big uh, area they had been given in us uh, on the soundstage and they were spraying clothing with it because it looked cool to have these stiff jackets and stuff. And I came by to see the, big sphere and i saw these incredible jackets you know so what are those you know like, we're just playing around like, well no 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 think think about it think really hard is there anything we can do with this and they turned out to be the, the kind of safety jackets hanging off the harnesses that the guys the electrodes wore when the ship took off at the end and they're sort of bouncing and in, in wearing these big crusty uh, pieces of clothing that have been sprayed with styrofoam and um that was a spirit you know if if you think about it and you think it doesn't violate some you know pr premise in this movie or it's in the spirit of where the movie's going just do it because you're never going to get a chance to do this again no matter what happens and that's all over the movie that way I'm amazed you ever directed a second time well I almost didn't it took 7 years and I didn't even want to do it then really I mean uh it, it, yeah it, it about <laughs> It about just disgusted me enough to make me want to leave town, which I eventually did. So, Well, you said that you went to school with uh, Earl Roush, and you weren't really even aware of it. Were you aware of John Carpenter at USC? 
Oh, absolutely. We were, I mean, there we were majoring in the same thing in theory, doing graduate work in film in a very small environment. I mean, it was it was a stable that used to have horses in it on the USC lot. So you were all tripping all over each other and trying to share editing equipment. And uh, Super 8 was what we started on. And that's really, that's editing spaghetti. I mean, that is really like the craziest time. So we all knew each other. So how did he approach you to work on Big Trouble in Little China? He didn't. The studio sent him the finished script. And he really liked it. And he called me in. And we had a very pleasant conversation, remembering things. And, he, you know, I had done Buckaroo. And, of course, his first question was, why why don't you want to direct this? And I, I don't know if I told him. But I said, no, I need a break. I, I do not want to. You know, and um, so he had a very um, focused set of notes, and I agreed with them. And I went away, and I executed them pretty quickly. And um, it was a greenlit picture already because that's why he was in the room. They were, you know, trying to get directors, and he said he wanted to do it, and they wanted to get him. So they had him, and uh, the changes I made satisfied him, satisfied the studio, and that's the script he shot. Um, It's full of, you know, the script is full of, of descriptions. But obviously, you know, depends who's directing it. And so the movie looks like John. Those are John's visuals, you know, completely uh, suggested by some of my reading in Oriental, Asian, you know, old texts and things like that very frantically while I was writing the script. And then he shot the movie, and that's it. We've talked a few times about timing and, you know, the 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 timing of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which was way too short, the overlong Nickelodeon script. When it comes to writing a character like Jack Burton, it feels like that whole idea of one page per uh, minute of screen time might not apply with somebody who speaks so much and speaks so rapidly. Is that kind of the case? It's definitely the case, but it also means that you really don't know how long anything is going to take as you're writing it. I mean, I, there's an intuitive thing that, that's hard to describe, but after you've written a lot of scripts, and I mean, I, by now, I've, I think I've written over 70, but then maybe 30 or so, where I could really sense that I wasn't out of control, I wasn't going to deliver something that was wildly too long, but you can't know, especially in an action film, never mind how fast Jack Burton would talk, how much time anybody wanted to devote to any of these action sequences. So at some point you kind of put it out of your mind and you you start to write hopefully write well into the character and jack when i first realized that that's how he was going to sound to me because i knew sort of that you as i began i he's in a big truck the cb rage was you know in full swing at that time so he was going to have to not be alone in the truck and i he, i started to make him talk and i thought holy cow i really like hearing this guy that talked this way and i'm not going to worry about length because I'm not going to have an irresponsible number of scenes in this movie, you know, so crazy that it's like a non-professional wrote it. So I just stopped thinking, you know, stopped worrying about that. Thinking you can always trim dialogue. If, you know, in a rehearsal it seems too wordy or scenes are playing too long. But if the remarks and the the comebacks and quips or something are coming to me, I better put them down rather than not put them down because John can always cut them, but I can't just remember them. I thought it was a great line. I think I had, you know, six weeks ago. And so you just, it's like automatic writing. And and Jack Burton was kind of an automatic writing thing for me because I, I heard him before. I, sometimes when you're writing dialogue and multiple people are talking in the scene, it is the strangest experience that you don't ponder who's going to speak next or what they're going to say. It just seems to come out like you, it 
happens right in front of you, almost like something's talking through you. I think that's often producing better things than if you agonize over, well, let's say he said that, but there's six other people in this scene, and who hasn't spoken recently, and what point should be brought up, and so that's why I think that Big Trouble does in a lot of ways take a lot of little sidebars in dialogue. That keeps it alive, but it also is a reflection of my not having a master plan that I had to hit these five points in this scene and then move on. Well, I can see why John Carpenter would like it, because I know he's a huge fan of Howard Hawks, and a lot of that rapid-fire dialogue between the characters is so Hawksian. I know. I can't pretend to have known that, because we all watch different movies. <laughs> but I, I, And so I don't even know why I like that. But I, um, I just like banter that uh, is unpredictable, and somebody talks too much and uh, often gets him or herself in trouble as a result of that and can maybe be endearing as a result of it and inadvertently heroic. <laughs> uh, you just, uh, it's a strange thing. You meet you meet characters when you're making them up that you really have an affinity for and want to spend more time with them. And you, that, you got to be careful about that because you can spend too much time with them and, you know, sacrifice uh, other kinds of momentum and structural moves. But it should be an adventure writing. I mean, that was my big bone to pick with how screenwriting was evolving when I was a reader. I, I, this is this may be actually interesting. I would be reading scripts that were in a kind of pidgin English just to get the job done. He crosses room, uh, opens door, leaves, and it left me cold. I mean, I wanted to be at the movies. I wanted to smell what was happening. Every now and then, I would come across a writer like Charles Eastman, um, who the all-American boy he directed and man that was a, he just turned out to be the world's worst director because he had such insecurity about his own stuff that he would do 60 takes but I'd never seen any screenplay look like his it was almost experimental writing it would he wouldn't call interiors or exteriors he would not break sentences apart it wasn't because he didn't know how to he just did a almost like a, a wild stream of consciousness like you, you imagine that's how Mozart wrote but it was funny. The prose was funny. It made the whole thing was alive. And I, I would read a couple of his scripts. He wrote Little Foss and Big Halsey, and he wrote stuff that didn't get made. But it was like reading a novelist working in, in a screenplay format. And I thought that's what it should be. It should be entertaining. It shouldn't be just pragmatic, especially if you're going to go out and try to sell it to somebody. You have to have a. I think you have to have a style that's yours that seems to be in sync with the particular material you're doing. And it's fun to read. And those scripts I was reading, even though they might have been blueprints for fine movies, were a drag to read because it was almost like the writer either couldn't couldn't create an atmosphere or didn't care to. And I, as I say, I just come out of you know English literature, and I, where, where we were trying so hard to take language apart and see why it worked and and what the explosive possibilities of certain kind of diction were and what was really you know special about Nathaniel West or I mean, those things were critical to me in my wanting to be a writer. And then I would read screenplays and think, these people don't care about that. They're not even trying. And then Charles Eastman would come along. And I would say, oh, I want so badly to be able to write like this. So, you know, that's those are seminal influences. And they came in in odd moments and odd places. And in some way, that's a, there's a through line to the way I wrote Big Trouble, because it was just supposed to be nonstop fun to read and uh, make sense, hopefully, as an overall movie, so somebody would want to make it. 
you talked about doing research and you know looking at some of the uh, the the myths of the Asian culture and stuff. And I'm curious, what were some of those books that you read, or did you watch a lot of movies, or how did you go about that? No, I didn't have time to watch movies because my recollection is there was a writer strike threatening, and I I think I'm right on this. I don't know if it even happened because there were a couple times when you know I had sort of like a window where I could conceivably finish a script before it might not. You know, you weren't even supposed to write on them, and at that time you thought, well, maybe I shouldn't, and then I'll lose my train of thought, and all that sort of stuff. It took a lot of sort of crazy energy to to read weird fragments from books that I got from the library and write simultaneously. Like, I would sit down and I'd read for an hour and two or three books and underline stuff that thought it might be relevant, but I would think, I better get back writing. And watching movies would have been impossible because, you know, that would eat up a whole day if you got three or four movies. So I would have these books stacked next to me with post-its in it, and it was really a fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants kind of operation where I, I would think, well, I need some some texture here that's authentic, and I'd grab one of these books, and I don't remember what they are. I didn't buy them, so they're gone from my library. They were, from you know, my personal library. They just vanished from my mind. But they weren't fiction. They were, you know, attempts to describe rituals and myths and all sorts of uh, arcane Asian lore and tried to make it fit in there. You know, thunder, lightning, those things, those super kind of mythical creatures came out of these books. So um, I would kind of recklessly throw them on the page and hope that that was the right decision because I could use them later on. Now, I know that opening, I don't want to called a rapper because I don't remember if they ever get back to it at the end but the opening interview with Egg that was definitely added like post-production what other things kind of change between what you wrote and what we see on screen I want to say very little I mean I know that ad-libs always happen and directors have to make the choice of using them or not and it's so long since I since I had that script fresh in my mind but no changes. I mean, John was not the kind of director who rewrote while he was shooting, like some of, you know, the advent of the computer has allowed directors to actually rewrite when they're on location scouts and not claim they're doing it, and then the script mutates underneath you. But John shot the script I wrote, and then at the end, that was that was everybody stepping back and saying, something's missing at the beginning, <laughs> because I guess like Buckaroo, there's a danger of being incoherent. <laughs> If memory serves, neither Buckaroo, Banzai, nor Big Trouble in Little China were box office bonanzas when they came out. I, I specifically remember really bad reviews for Big Trouble, but they are still with us today, and they have become some of the better films of the 1980s. And I'm curious, when did you know that they were ultimately successes? Well, Buckaroo immediately um, set on fire a very small group of people who saw it in uh, maybe even test screenings, but there was a handful. They're still my friends, um, you know, like Denise and Mike Okuda, who now work on Star Trek, met over Buckaroo when a fan club began to form called, um, well, they, call, they called it World Watch One, and they began immediately writing a newsletter. And they, she was a nurse at the time, and he was uh, a graphic designer, maybe getting into computers. And they fell in love and got married as a result of Buckaroo. They would be, you know, they and a small handful of people were generating these newsletters, kind of almost in the world of mimeographs, but I think that's a little fanciful. It was probably copy machines, uh, Xeroxes. 
and circulating them. There was no internet that was you could use as a medium, and so um, I would get these requests from this group for interviews, and then I would see the next newsletter, and it had fan fiction in it. I thought, oh my goodness. And this was happening fairly fast, but not with a large number of people, because they lacked the ability to find each other. But I knew that it wasn't going to go away. There was a, a, a rabid, diehard group that 30-something year, years later, are, they're still doing news. You know, Now they're working on the internet, and they're a, a very supportive group of people who will push it forward any way they can and Denise and Mike are always hiding buckaroo imagery in the Star Trek sets you know they're putting an overthruster on the table over in the corner and stuff and and that sort of grew from the very beginning into what it is now big trouble sneaked up on me because I don't really know when it started to be something that was not going to be forgotten but it it was years after the movie was released that, that I somehow I can't remember how suddenly became aware that it had this intense support among sci-fi fantasy fans and that people were quoting Jack Burton and there were little dolls that people were making that looked like him. And it startled me. It's that simple. I just thought it had vanished. Why do you think it's such an enduring film? If you're disposed to like it, it's joyful and it's unpredictable and it's flashy in the best sense. And it's in its own way, a bit of a one-off. So, when you take chances and make these things that they have what look like references, maybe like they came out of some long history of serials or um, you know kung fu movies or something, but they really didn't because you're you're like I'm not a kung fu movie fanatic at all, so I wasn't lost in that world. So it is a hybrid of what I what amuses me and what I do know about that did know about that world. So. Maybe it's that weird mix. I mean, Buckaroo is a very strange mix of things. You can't plan it. I mean, you can't really say, well, this is going to be a real strange mix, so watch, it'll become a cult film. You just do it because you have a gut instinct that this piece of material is special and different, and let's try to see what it is when you stand it up on its feet and you hear actors saying these things and you think about what thunder and lightning could actually look like with those great basket hats that came out of nowhere. I don't know where they came from. I didn't imagine them. Everybody is contributing on some level if it's clicking right. And often when you're making that movie, you really do think, not that it's a cult film, but that people are really going to like this because we're having a lot of fun here. And then it comes out and, oh my God, what did we do? You know, But it's so gratifying after all this time to hear so many people be affected by it and how it lodged in their brains. I mean, have you seen the Kevin Smith's introduction to it uh, at Lincoln Center? Um, Google Buckaroo Banzai Kevin Smith Lincoln Center. He did a he did a screening of it, and he did the most wonderful uh, recollection of his encounter with the movie when he was a kid, and what it meant to him, and how liberating it was about what you can possibly do if you're willing to take chances. And I think both of these movies do that kind of regularly, from minute to minute. And I can guess that then maybe that's something to do with why people find them unforgettable. People who get them, and there's a huge, you know, huge group of people who just think they're the most ridiculous things, truly, that ever came down the pike. Well, both movies kind of live on. I know that there are comic adaptations and, and continuations of both Buckaroo Banzai and of Jack Burton. Have you been exposed to those? Yeah, well, the, some of the uh, comic book stuff Mac Roush wrote 
and I, I worked with them on some of them. Nothing with big trouble. That was all done. You know, I was never contacted that any of that stuff was happening. You know, I have different experiences with both movies. Mac has just finished a um, pretty remarkable 600-page-plus new Buckaroo novel for Dark Horse Comics because they're, they're doing prose now, too. And it's amazing. It needs editing. I mean, it's his first draft, but it's it takes it wonderful places that <clears throat> I was hoping to take the movie but didn't have the time or the resources or the um, cinematographer. But this is a, an incredible piece of writing, and he's writing as if he were the same age as he was when he wrote the original. I mean, I've never read anything. I never know what's coming next on the page. You may know this or not, but it looks like we're having a successful conversation with MGM and, and Kevin Smith to do a Buckaroo TV series. But it's incremental. You know, you don't do the series automatically. You have to have a meeting of the minds and generate a pilot script and stuff like that. But people want to do that. They don't look at it as something that just should sit in the dustbin somewhere. That's gratifying. It's strange, too. You know, like 30 years later, wow. Well, you mentioned a couple times that you're retired. Is that true, or are you still working on stuff? Well, I'm retired in the sense that I don't go to L.A., and I don't pitch things and you know sit in rooms and try to get people to like what I might want to write. So I'll write prose pieces, and you know I'll take a screenplay I wrote a while ago and adapt it into a novel and not do anything with it just because I like the act of writing. Um, you know, a writer doesn't really retire unless you announce it like Philip Roth did and stop writing. But you find a way. You're doing something. Maybe you're writing emails to your friends that are too long. Uh, you know, you just want to put words down on some kind of a medium and play around with language. So I'm retired from the game I played for all those years. But, I, you know, I still think I'm a writer. I'm not something else. Well, Rick, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. It's been really a pleasure revisiting all these crazy movies. back and we're talking about Big Trouble in Little China. So I did mention the comic books earlier. And I have to say, I really enjoyed the comics that I have read. I've read, there were at least three different storylines that they took Jack Burton into. One just called Big Trouble in Little China, which picks up at the end of the movie. So we get to see what happens with him and Pete, that big creature at the end. And then there's Old Man Jack, which, you know, I mentioned Ash versus the Evil Dead. It kind of reminds me of that as far as this reluctant hero. The way that it starts is kind of interesting because it starts and it looks like Jack is living in Florida, which is also weird because that's where Ash wanted to go. 
he's living in Florida, having a great time. And then you realize that he's actually living in like a bubble universe. And he made a deal with a demon to live in this bubble universe and not upset the apple cart. And he let the entire world become hell, basically. That's a very interesting comic book. And then there's a really strange one, which is Big Trouble in Little China meets Escape from New York, where we have both Jack and Snake Plissken. So you've got the two Kurt Russells going against each other. There's some good humor there, but I mean, the characters are so freaking different, which is really, again, a testament to what Carpenter and Kurt Russell were able to do to have these two completely different characters and have them completely fleshed out within just a few movies from each other. And so that one, I can't say works as well, but the other two titles I highly recommend. <laughs> the Escape to New York one's really strange because I think, I think he goes into the Escape to New York post-apocalyptic world, if I remember rightly in that. And it, it, it's, it's really, it, it is, it is odd. There was another one as well that wasn't, too long ago, which was um, Big Trouble in Mother Russia. Have you come up with Mike as well? <laughs> uh, it's an uh, illustrated novel. But yeah, he ends up in Russia, basically. I, I, didn't re- I didn't actually read all of it, but it was, it was a fun, I love the title. You know, it's just like, you could just adapt it and put him anywhere in, <laughs> in the world and just tweak, tweak the letters a bit, tweak the words. But yeah, I think, I think they've, they've, they've tried to do some interesting things with it. The Old Man Jack one, is that, is that a take on Old Man Logan? I think it is. I think there is uh, a little bit of a nod there, yeah. That, again, is one of those things that Big Trouble is sort of, if not directly lampooning, it's sort of taking some of these, you know, more traditional narratives, like a Marvel superhero or, you know, Escape from New York, and putting that quirky, strange Big Trouble spin on them, even in just comic book form. I've just looked it up now to give myself a refresher. It's set in Cold War. In Cold War Soviet Russia, he's, he's, he has trouble from the KGB, the Russian mob, and um, some of the old characters who are in big trouble are back. Um, so Wang and Gracie on the streets of Moscow. So that's from what I did read of that. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it's the like a Wang version of Wang who's in that um, post-apocalypse that brings him in, and he screws up because he learns like the uh, the spell. And then he brings Jack Burton in instead of Snake. Yeah, Plissken. that's that's yeah, <laughs> that's what he does. Yeah, I remember that now. <laughs> so yeah, so you have these different versions of these characters, and I, I think Lopan might be behind some of that stuff as well. I'm not sure because Lopan definitely shows up in a lot of these. Yeah, he's not quite dead, is he? They find way him back. But that, that's the thing. I, I, I kind of I kind of love the fact we never got a sequel to Big Trouble in Little China because I mean, in this day and age, had it been made you know, five, ten years ago, you would have had at least a trilogy probably now. You know, had it done better, I suppose, at the box office. But, you know, they would they would have kept they would have probably found a way to bring low low pan back and all this kind of thing. And I'm like, oh no, I like the fact it was a one off. You know, I, I to this day I still love the fact that that was it. And, you know, we didn't need any more. A lot of people will just shit all over the idea of sequels, reboots, etc. Even though, you know, we've, I always point this out on the show, the Maltese Falcon that everybody knows and loves was the third version of that story. So not everything is, is terrible, you know, and I'm, I'm curious with uh, Dwayne Johnson being in a version of this. A lot of people were scared when he did Jumanji, and I have to say that, and I know I'll get shit for this, but I really liked the version of Jumanji, Jumanji that he was in. So I'm curious 
if this is going to be a reboot, a remake, a sequel, or how he's going to work with the original material with his version of this, if it actually comes out. Because there have been remake talks of Escape from New York and or slash Escape from L.A. for decades now. We've never seen that. I think this will happen because, you know, if, you, if you've got the, the rock, you know, attached, you've, you've got more of a chance, I think, of, of getting something made, really. And, and off the back of Jumanji is another film, you know, Welcome to the Jungle, that owes, owes a debt to Big Trouble. You know, it has that balance of action and comedy and silliness and quirkiness and was a lot of fun for it. You know, for, I agree. I really enjoyed it as well. And I think, you know, you've got a better chance of, of getting that made. From what I've read, I'm glad that he's not, it's not a reboot. I'm glad that it's not, you know, Dwayne Johnson playing Jack Burton because I think I I, I would have had a problem with that really <laughs> I think if it's if it's set in the same universe fine I can live with that but no I don't think anyone could really do that the same way that Kurt Russell did you know I'd rather see an older Jack come back the same kind of guy just thirty years older because Kurt Russell's still great he still could do it you know as he proved and you know you mentioned it Vincenzo with Guardians of the Galaxy you know he, he was one of the best things about Guardians of the Galaxy mm. boss too. You know, he was great as ego. So, you know, he can, he can still do that kind of swaggering thing, even now in his 60s. So I'd rather see him come back. I'm one of those people that hates uh, sequels and remakes. <laughs> but it's not, it's not in principle, I don't. But I just, just like to see new things. <laughs> and, and, you know, the good sequels and the good remakes are new. Like they provide something that's... I think actually, I think to do a, a remake well is a very difficult thing because what you're doing is taking something that was created at a very specific time. And I really do believe movies are like time capsules, um, more so than most other art forms. They're very specific to the moment in which they're made. And then you're having to find a way to suddenly make that thing that existed 30 years ago and make it relevant for this moment. That's the trick. And I too often, they're done for the most cynical reasons and they don't work because those stories were about the moment that they were created in. So it'd be interesting to see like a big trouble, contemporary big trouble, because I wonder, I just you know, be curious to know what the entry point into that is like, what makes it fresh? Big trouble is so exciting in the, the moment that it was made because there really wasn't anything like that. There really wasn't a movie that took Hong Kong cinema and, and particularly Hong Kong fantasy um, movies in an American context like that. Maybe there's another film, but I don't think there was. And um, whereas now, you know, we've been we've kind of gone through that whole phase. Like we assimilated America or Hollywood. I say we Hollywood assimilated Hong Kong cinema really in the 90s, early 2000s, and then that kind of passed. <laughs> it passed through its system. <laughs> and now we're back to just whitewashing stuff. I was, you know, when you were talking about the uh, Jack Burton Snake Plissken comic, I was thinking, God, you know, is it too outrageous to think that someone will do that? Like that that'll become as a movie, you know, like a, as digital technology evolves and we start reproducing movie stars um, in their youth. Like, is it is it a completely outrageous notion that someone might go, oh, we're going to make the Snake Plissken Jack Burton movie, only it'll be, you know, all completely a digital film. So you'll hurt Russell as he was in both of those movies. It's come to the point where I, I feel like that's, you can't laugh at that idea. <laughs> you know, like, especially after seeing young Kurt Russell in that guardians of the galaxy movie. And he looked to me, he looked fine. He looked a lot better than grand Moff Tarkin or princess Leia. 
you know, and in the culture, like it eats, it's, you know, pop culture eats itself in such a way that I, like I was, someone was mentioning to me, you know, um, remember how on Entourage Aquaman was the joke of that, the like the <laughs> jokey premise of that whole show. <laughs> and here we are. $800 million later. Yeah. It, that's the thing that I feel kind of bad about is that we, you know, we talked a little bit and I talked to, to Sandy King about the whole idea of the, um, you know, the protests against the movie and how many Asian people were employed both behind and in front of the camera. And we still don't necessarily have that today, you know, and that's the thing is like, we can talk about how Hollywood came in, the basically took all the things that they wanted from Hong Kong cinema and then they left the rest. And one of those things that they, they, they left, unfortunately was a lot of the Asian actors and it was just, you know, you still see occasionally Jackie Chan in front of the camera, but you don't see that many Asian faces. And, you know, I, I mentioned whitewashing before. It's like how many Asian female actresses do we have that could have been in ghost in the shell rather than, having Scarlett Johansson. I love Scarlett Johansson. Didn't necessarily like that movie that much, but, and it's just one of those things where it's like, why are you doing this? It's this weird cultural appropriation, which people could accuse big trouble in little China 1986 of having. And I'm very curious if Dwayne Johnson makes this, is there going to be those cries or will he be the second banana and allow an Asian person to be the top banana in that film? Mm-hmm. I, I could see him doing that. I, I, I think he can laugh at himself enough to do that. I, 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 th- I, th- I think he would. I think he'd. Ha- I, I, I think he would appreciate what's going to be the most entertaining. And I, I think he. I think and he, you know, coming from wrestling, that's theatrical and overblown and silly. You know, I could well imagine him having that in him. And, and I think, I think the difference with Big Trouble, I, I never quite, I, I never quite got the, the, the problem with with the big trouble thing in the, the, the difference with the difference with that is that it seemed to be trying to, to sort of honor some of these traditions, as silly as it was, it seemed to try and understand the mythology and understand you know, the cultural side of it. For heaven's sake, the, you know, the hero is the Chinese guy. You know, he, he's the hero. He's the guy who saves the day. Whereas something like ghost in the shell, you, you know, the, the filmmakers really are shooting themselves in the foot. You know, because they're making something that doesn't culturally fit. They're trying to put square peg in a round hole. And the result is something that's lackluster and something that doesn't doesn't really work because it doesn't honor the culture that it was made. in. It doesn't honor the source material. So I think there's, there's a big difference. I think with something like Big Trouble, I think the criticisms were maybe a bit too unfair. And I, I, I think to this day, I can, I can in one respect, I can see what they mean. But in another, I'm like, I think that was trying to do the right thing. Were the criticisms after the film was made because i remember at the time when when the movie was being made there were protests from the chinese american community but i felt like that had a lot to do with another movie which is this michael cimino film called year of the dragon which i haven't seen in a long time so it's really unfair for me to comment on but i i suspect could be considered racist whereas again i'm not someone to comment on this being white male but um, but I never thought Big Trouble was racist in any way. Um, quite the opposite. To me, it was like an entry point into the culture and made great efforts and very gracefully um, humanized the Chinese community for mainstream American audience. Uh, whereas I think Fear of the Dragon perhaps did the opposite. And that's what people were at the time were really offended by. But I wonder, was there 
a backlash against Big Trouble after people saw the movie? I think it was all beforehand and that they got it ironed out before the movie came out. Not that that ended up helping things because, you know, Carpenter talks in the commentary again about how little money there was behind the uh, putting this out. And the thing that really surprised me was um, Sandy talking about how uh, basically the guy in charge of the the studio was like, we don't want to see any expletive deleted faces on this poster. You know, like there was an open hostility towards Asian actors from the head of the studio who was in charge when this movie came out. And it's just like, wow. Okay. So they're going to, you know, you can't necessarily market this movie any other way than putting Kurt Russell on the poster and having him be the big star. And then subverting your expectations once you get into the theater. But, you know, so it, it was a little bit of a, a a weird bait and switch type of campaign. But you really, you have to sell it that way. You know, you have to say Kurt Russell is the hero. And then once you get in there, then you realize, no, he's not the hero. That he is the second banana. Even though he's the guy who ends up killing Lopan. But, you know, he is undone so many times. That, that famous scene that we talked about earlier of him shooting the plaster and that coming down on his head. There's another scene where Wang is just kicking ass of all these different guys. And Jack is there trying to get his knife out. And he's just the whole time he's trying to get his knife out of his boot. And it's just like, okay, you are completely ineffectual. And I can't even see like a second banana necessarily doing that. Like I can see Sala getting scared of the asps and that kind of stuff. But Sala at the end of the day is a really effective person in the first Raiders, not like the third Raiders where he was a nincompoop. But so, yeah, luckily they had all that stuff worked out. But, yeah, I think it was totally Year of the Dragon. And then it's weird because I don't remember that many protests around Black Rain. I don't remember that many protests around Rising Sun. And Rising Sun, to me, is one of the most racist movies that came out. That was really hard to watch. And, like, I would not recommend that anybody go back and watch that one because it is super just uncomfortable, like, you know, treating... Japanese people like they were from outer space and that was such a you know a reactionary film especially you know after the 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 Japanese were just kicking our ass all through the 80s as far as our economic stuff goes and it was really a reaction to a lot of stuff with that yeah so I find Big Trouble you know to be a really progressive movie just like all of John Carpenter's films were um, they're really socially progressive they had a I think he was a card carrying liberal and, um, and you know, you feel it. It's, uh, those films date well. And the nice thing too is again, listening to that commentary and other interviews with him, he will never back down from how much he was influenced by other movies. You know, like I talked about Howard Hawks and what a, you know, we all know that it was a huge Howard Hawks fan, but he will bring up in a heartbeat, like, oh yeah, uh, we watched a lot of these movies. I was a huge fan of Choi Hark and uh, Warriors from the Magic Mountain, which if folks out there haven't seen Warriors from the Magic Mountain, you can really see a lot of big trouble in that. And especially because it's these, this really hapless army guy who is basically uh, hiding out from his own army and he gets involved with this sorcerer and has no idea what the fuck is going on through so much of this and is pretty much along for the ride and again is pretty ineffectual like the sorcerer is great he'll bounce all around and special effects are amazing in that film you can see a lot of uh, 
some of the ideas like it, it seems very you know going back to evil dead it feels very evil dead in so far as the way that they're using fast motion and and uh animation and all these kind of things to uh to to convey the story you know yeah i think that sam raimi was right there as far as and we see that especially once he brings john Wu over and then when we have um army of darkness like they're especially the end of army of darkness that takes place at the s mart that is right out of a john Wu film so he was very much like bringing hong kong sensibility to this and i see john carpenter doing very much the same thing by reinterpreting some of warriors of magic mountain into big trouble in little china so let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. Most any place can seem to be a paradise While you embrace just the one that you adore There needn't be an apple tree with magic power That's right. We'll be back next week with our first of two episodes about Ernst Lubitsch, where we'll focus on Trouble in Paradise and To Be or Not to Be. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Vincenzo and Tony. Holy shit, Tony Vincenzo. I've just entered into another one of the podcasts that I do, which is the Kolchak Tapes. So, Tony, what is the latest with you? I'm having a bit more of a break right now, to be honest, but you can still find what I'm doing on, on Twitter at uh, AJ Black Writer. That's my main Twitter. Uh, I've got my blog www.theculturalconversation.com where I'm reviewing films and TV shows and uh, generally doing articles and my uh, there will also be on my website um, my entertainment website which is www.setthetape.com so you can find what I'm up to on there really. And Vincenzo what projects have you been working on lately sir? Uh, Just uh, finishing a movie for Netflix that's um, based on a novella by Stephen King and Joe Hill called In the Tall Grass um, which has been a lot of fun to do and, uh, you know, <laughs> perpetually rolling that heavy rock up the very steep hill next thing going. Um, but I guess in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at Vincenzo Mitali. Very nice. And I hear you're recently on the uh, shining two, three, seven podcast. Thanks to you. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. It was a lot of fun. I want to thank everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.